pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, 
southern-sense.com and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and you're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the hostess, the Big Chick And today I have no Curtis with me, no Mike, no Kel, but I may have someone popping in occasionally to, uh, you know, talk for a little bit. His name happens to be Yami happens to be my husband, so he may be popping in to join us on the show. I want to welcome everyone that's listening in, in the studio, as well as those that are showing up in the chat room. Uh, welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. Um, we've got a lot to do today and a lot to talk about. Um, we've got two great guests. We're going to have, at the second hour, Karen Singamon. Uh, she was, uh, she is a conservative activist. And, uh, she's going after the media uh, and uh because of her conservative attitudes and speaking in the truth, she got fired. And she is now the chairman of the American Freedom Alliance. She will be joining us as our first guest. And then as our second guest, we're going to have the executive director of the Gold Star Ride Foundation, Tony Price. So we have two great guests on the show. Uh, just want to uh, remind everyone that yesterday um, was the 75th anniversary of the initiation of D-Day. And uh, after we do our normal dedication, we will do a second dedication to those brave men and all the people that gave them the support in the D-Day invasion that lasted from June 6th until June 12th. Um, So it's going to be exciting. Uh, We have someone that popped up in the studio that may be wanting to co-host with us with Erica Press one, and I know that you can join us. Otherwise, I will assume that this individual is just going to be listening in. So, as we get started, those that listen to the show, that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Specialist Jackson Johnson. And uh, Specialist Jackson. Jackson Johnson, and Sergeant Holly Bolinski, who were killed on March 7th of this year while serving during Operation Spartan Shield. And this is coming from several sources. One of them, the fallen in the military times, mydleaderpaper.com, as well as kfvs12.com. And finally, from Dana DeFever of M Live out of Flint. It starts off as a pair of soldiers were killed in a non-combat accident on Tuesday, March 7th. In the morning, an Army Central Command spokeswoman confirmed to Army Times. One of these soldiers was identified as Sergeant Holly Belinsky, 37, according to Military.com, whose husband released her name ahead of the Army's official statement. The second was 20-year-old specialist Jackson Johnson, according to a release from the 184th Theater Sustainment Command. 
The soldiers were traveling in North Kuwait when their vehicle collided with a civilian commercial truck. Three soldiers were medevaced to U.S. Military Hospital Kuwait to be treated for their injuries. Johnson was pronounced dead upon arrival at USMH-K. Belinsky died as a result of her injury, and a third soldier was injured is pending medical evacuation from Kuwait. The soldiers were members of the 657th Transport Detachment, an Illinois-based Army Reserve Unit, and deployed to Camp Arifajan. The incident is under investigation. A third U.S. soldier was hurt in the wreck, but that soldier's name was not released. The three soldiers were in a military vehicle that collided with a civilian commercial truck. Major Andy Thaggard of the 184th Sustainment Commanding Kuwait said that the commercial vehicle was a water truck and the incident is still under investigation. Hillsborough Principal Kathy Freeman said Johnson is remembered fondly at the school. He committed himself to the military early, she said. We are just so proud of him and we're devastated to hear he has died. He was very well thought of in our high school. We'll be thinking of the ways to commemorate him after we speak to his family. We had a moment of silence for him on March 7th. Army Sergeant Holly Belinsky, her body arrived in Pickneyville on March 18th. Flags lined Route 124 for miles, and people gathered along the route to pay their respects in her hometown at Pickneyville some with hands over their hearts, and some in tears. We talked to an Iraq war veteran who served in Kuwait and went to school with Sergeant Belinsky. He said it's important to show support to veterans who come home and to the families of the fallen. Great show from our community, Dustin Patterson said, bringing one of our community home, heroes home, our four fallen soldiers. Our community has always been known for being very supportive of the military and welcome home our veterans, our heroes that have fallen, and the ones that come home like I did. He said this hit close to home for him because he knew Sergeant Belinsky personally and even coached her boys in football. We also talked to a combat veteran who was a part of the same Combat Veteran Motorcycle Association as Sergeant Belinsky's brother. Don't let any veteran go to the final resting home alone, Dave Hess said. We were lucky enough to come home. Unfortunately, she was not. So it's behooven on every combat veteran to pay homage and to pay tribute to a fallen combat. Hess's motorcycle group traveled miles from Mount Vernon to Air Force Base and then to Pickneyville. He said too many soldiers do not get proper burial that they deserve. If notified, he said his organization will make sure no soldier is forgotten. One of Sergeant Belisky's best friends, Kayla Arndt, told us we could all learn from Holly. She has a very big hearted person. She had a lot of compassion for people. And I really hope that everyone can make take away the value of compassion these days. She was willing to give everything, even her life, to keep us safe. Even people who did no, Sergeant Belinsky did things to support her, like Girl Scout Troop 8131, who sent Belinsky's unit in Kuwait homemade cookies 
after they heard the news. Hundreds turned out to honor member U.S. Army Sergeant Joseph Dennis Johnson during his funeral at Central Church of the Nazarene in Flint. The 24-year-old Mundy Township man was killed in combat. Johnson is the first soldier with local ties. The Reverend W. Glenn Gardner said, Johnson loved his job of dismantling bombs and lived by the model. If it's not worth the risk, it's not worth it. We are here today to pay tribute and honor to a man who couldn't just join the Army. He had to give everything to the Army. So he would call you in the middle of the minefield and say, Hey, Mom, guess where I'm at, Gardner said. Today's show is dedicated to these two brave heroes. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who served in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. It's also dedicated to the brave men and women who serve as our first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And to them we dedicate with this song, My Name is America, by Todd Allen Harrington. May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend Don't try. 
All right, Todd Allen Harrington, and you're here listening to Sense and Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie. And my guest co-host decided to show up a little late, but always as handsome as ever. Oh, Mike, good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? I'm great. I apologize for being late. I'm going door-to-door as a candidate, and but I slid in just a little safe, I would say. Thanks for having me, Annie. Excited to be with you. Oh, it is my pleasure. Um, matter of fact, I just pulled your picture up and added you to the video here. <laughs> and we did Rock finally on. successfully get ourselves we did finally successfully get ourselves up onto Facebook. But I am if people are looking at me, I'm little old school today. I'm using a USB headset, uh, because my computer that was just been repaired crashed big time. And it looks like the repairs this guy claimed to have made on my computer weren't done or not done properly. So it's back in the shop. I'm not on my mixer board. So if I sound a little funny, that's because I was forced to go old school <laughs> and use up a backup here. But uh, luckily I was able to get ourselves up on on Facebook. Hopefully the next time we do the show, I'll have it up on YouTube also running nice and smooth. But, Mike, you know, I wanted to talk about something really, really important. And I didn't see this over a lot of the news stations, and you would have thought that something like this would be on the front page of every single major newspaper in the nation. Yesterday was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And I didn't. I saw little clips here and there. And of all things, I would have thought Fox News would have broadcasted the ceremony in its entirety at least. But I didn't even see that anywhere. Did you? Um. Very little coverage, sadly, on the 75th year anniversary. And it's becoming less and less the same thing with Pearl Harbor. I, I, I mean, to to the movement, um, Fox News is becoming more and more left. But in general, they still have a, somewhat of a conservative uh, base. But in general, the media itself is moving away from uh, portraying these individuals as heroes. Um because their idea, obviously, is a different uh, – they don't look at them as heroes. And uh, it is amazing that the same people that hate us, Annie, we saved them from Hitler. We saved them from Europe being a complete uh, – basically, Hitler Hitler uh, contrived, you know. Hitler ran. So, I mean, it just goes to show you, you are never more than a generation from uh, losing everything. Yeah, and you think of what these men went through. Uh, the days of it, it, this thing was two years in the planning, and these are the countries that participated in D-Day on the Allies side. It was the British Empire, the United States, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, Czechoslovakia, France, Norway, Poland. It, to put this all together, this humongous operation that came close to failing very close to failing. And several times it almost came close to being revealed. And the, the, the subterfuge they had to use with the German spies to prevent it from being known. And the Germans that dropped the ball when they had the indications that something was coming were not fully prepared. You know, the units involved, uh, 
with the 1st Army on Omaha Beach, the V Corps, which is the 1st Infantry, 29th Infantry. On Utah Beach, the 7th Corps, which is the 4th Infantry, 90th Infantry, 82nd and 101 Airborne. Um, over on, uh, let's see, we also had uh, the 2nd Army on that one, on Gold Beach, which was the 30th Corps, which was the 50th Infantry. On Juneau Beach, uh, the 3rd Canadian Infantry. On Sword, you had the 3rd Infantry and 6th Airborne. The total strength um, was 156,000 soldiers, 195, 700 naval personnel, 10,000 casualties, 4,414 dead, 185 Sherman tanks. If you think about this massive equipment that went on on the 6th of June, and they didn't secure Normandy until the 12th of June. It it was an amazing, amazing undertaking. And it was six waves of invasion. And they're saying on the very first wave, there was a 90% casualty rate. The second wave, it went a little lower to 80. The third wave, 70%. Until finally the sixth wave made land. Can you imagine that one out of ten people coming off those initial boats would only make it to the shore? That's staggering. That is. That is staggering. When, when you when you when you say something like that, it is almost impossible to fathom. When you see the actual pictures of all those bodies just floating while people are. Uh, storming the beach. Um, several of them obviously never even made it. Their equipment was so heavy. But no, Annie, and it, and it really is a, I don't know quite how to say this without, uh, you know, um, getting way overly emotional. But what these heroes did is unbelievable. And we should be forever grateful. And it's even, to be an American and be ungrateful is one thing. But to be a European and to be completely stupid because we we not only saved the kids of today, we saved their parents and their grandparents. And to see individuals like Angela Merkel, as well as the mayor of Great Britain, um, it, it really goes to show in a republic what you're fighting for. Uh, you're fighting so idiots can be very, very stupid people. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it really is amazing uh, what they accomplished. And we think of D-Day, we think of Normandy. There were many more beaches than Normandy on D-Day. I mean, there's Omaha. It's an endless list of uh, things that were going on. And, you know, Annie, keep in mind, we on D-Day, we weren't just fighting the Germans overwhelmingly. We were fighting the Germans for other countries, but we were also fighting in the Pacific against another empire, Japan. That is unbelievably amazing. Yes. Don't forget Italy also. And it's it was a, a war that spanned continents. You had the war in Europe, Africa, and Asia. You, know, you think about this. It went even in so far as to going into the Middle East, this war. You think about how much of the globe was involved in this. And we had the invasion here of Pearl Harbor. So you think about it. The only country that wasn't involved in an 
that actually had battles going on in South America. The only continent. That is a staggering thing to think of, of that world war. Yeah. It's just unbelievable how what what was accomplished on D Day. And if you Annie, if you think about it, we've talked about the waves. By the very next day we had secured the beaches. I mean, how amazing no, is that? It was not secure until June was not secured until June twelfth. Six days they battled. It was that long? I thought I thought it was overnight. Well, anyway, either way, it is it is unbelievably amazing what they have done. So, wow. Yeah, and and Trump was over there to celebrate the uh, the seventy fifth, and what he did was he read the full text of FDR's prayer on June sixth, which I'm going to take a moment to do that. So we do a dedication to the brave men of the Normandy invasion and also to all of the brave men and women that fought in the World War II. Because you've got to remember, women were out there in the, in the line of fire. Uh, and God bless uh, TMC. I love the old movie channel. They played nonstop yesterday, all World War II movies, The Longest Day, uh, and on and on. And my husband and I recorded them so we could sit back and continue to watch them. Um, so I'm going to read this real quickly. I shouldn't say real quickly, uh, but I do have someone in there waiting to talk to us on the phone, and I'll bring the individual on after I finish uh, uh, Roosevelt's prayer on June 6th for the troops. And he okay. stated, and I, I, you will not find a politician being able to say these words. This is how far to show you how far the Democrats have gone because they would be afraid to say these words today. But I am not. And I'll read. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day has set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard, for the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace, and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day, without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest, they fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn, but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them.
That's that's so emotional. To thy kingdom and for us home. Just bear with me for a second. And for us home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us. Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer as we rise to each new day. And again, when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give strength to us, too. Strength in our daily tasks to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wade out the long travail, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons wheresoever they may be. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters, but a fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemies. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial racial aggregancies. Let us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all of men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done. Almighty God. Amen. And to this I will add from Dave Gray. Actually, I will end it with amazing grace.
75th anniversary of D-Day. Our dedication today to the brave men and women that fought it. My father served in World War II. He was, he got, he, not into battle, but he did serve as occupying troops in Germany. He was too young, and his mother wouldn't let him sign up until his birthday. And on that day, he went straight to the Army Recruiting Station and signed on the dotted line. And there was ships to serve overseas in Germany as occupying troops. My, both of my grandfathers served in World War I. These were brave men, men like this that fought for our freedoms and liberties. And Mike, no wonder why we call them the greatest generation. Wow. <clears throat> How you expect me to follow that up, Annie? Oh, man. Well, you know, Annie, um, oftentimes I, I look at the name of a building or I see a statue um, and I ask somebody, um, the building or the statue is named after somebody, and I ask somebody, tell me about Mr. or Mrs. Jones or whoever the statue is. And I mean, the greatest generation didn't just fight for the republic. But I mean, they, they did so many other things that were just amazing. They were unselfish throughout their entire life, throughout this country. They didn't just fight socialism and communism. I mean, they continued to fight for, uh, you know, for the rights of we the people. And uh, a lot of people don't know about the Battle of Athens. When the veterans from World War II came home and uh, in Athens, Tennessee, where basically a black man was being denied the right to vote, the World War II veterans went right after the sheriff. I mean, that's just, it's just how amazing the they Battle of Athens, were. Yeah, the Battle of Athens was even far more than that. That was when a crooked sheriff actually took all the ballot boxes and had them in the police station and wasn't allowing the public <laughs> the votes. They were trying to steal the election. So the World War II veterans armed themselves, stormed the police station, retrieved the ballots, and had them honestly counted. So, yeah, that's what the truth of the Battle of Athens was. But, Mike, we've got someone in on the call, someone that was going to step in as co-host if you didn't show up, uh, the one, the only, and I must say the most handsome individual, far better than looking than you, Mike. <laughs> My husband, Yanni. <laughs> Poor suffering. Hey, Yanni with us. Yanni, don't walk yes. aboard, Yanni. He's not even in the office. Yes. He's on the other side of the house. He's not even allowed to hear. <laughs> Go ahead, Yanni. Oh, I'm listening to you. What's up, Yanni? Yes. Go ahead. Mike, is that you? Yanni? Yes, it's Mike. In yes, person, Mike Yanni, person. how are you? I don't you know how to work this thing, Mike. <laughs> yes? It's called a telephone. Okay. You just talk into it, honey. <laughs> oh. Go ahead, Yanni. I don't know what to hit. Yanni? Just talk. Yanni, you all you need to do is talk. talk. I can hear you. I, can't, I don't know what to hit here. You don't hit anyone, you, anything. You just talk, Yanni. It's a telephone. You just talk into it like a telephone. <laughs> what? All right, moving moving right along. Uh Yanni, what's your opinion of uh, Barack Obama? <laughs> uh, I I think we lost him. Oh. 
I think we uh, anyway, Annie, I was going to I was going to tell a great story. Um this is a true story. Last year I got to cover um with our local magazine that I write for um a 100-year-old veteran. Um he's a World War II veteran. He worked on the fighter pilots and um when when they were damaged or uh when they were damaged and they would return um for a while he was on land and for a while on the uh on the aircraft carrier he said that his group was so good at at basically repairing and getting them ready to go that they could do it as quickly as we get our oil changed in a car so yeah, if they amazing. basically That's got amazing. that fighter if they got the plane back to the wherever whether it was on land or on the aircraft carrier they could get it ready to fly and go to back to battle that quickly absolutely there was a movie that was on tmc yesterday which was the battle of britain and it is a powerful powerful movie if you have not seen it people go to youtube just do google uh, battle of britain for youtube i'm sure the entire movie is up there watch it uh, it, it is very, very powerful. The turnaround, they had them down to two minutes turning these planes around to get them up in the air. They had to because the field was being attacked. They had to get those planes off the field and, and to see what they went through. And I think this was going all across Europe. It wasn't just the Battle of Britain. It was every airfield throughout Europe and Africa and Asia. And, yeah, Wolf is correct. <laughs> Our racing pit crews have nothing on what these guys could do. And it wasn't just guys. It was, you know, gals were out there on these airfields, too, that were being uh, bombarded with strength. Uh, it's amazing. As a matter of fact, uh, later on this month, we're going to have a Tuskegee Airman on the show. Um, he's going to be with us, I believe, next Friday. He's got a great uh, book out that we're going to be talking about. It was, we'll have an actual Tuskegee Airmen on, on the show. And we had Emory McClinton on, and uh, we were talking about his, his cousin, who was not only a mechanic on the plane, he was also a flyer. He was not an officer. He was a master chief. But he worked on them, and he flew them. He was a Tuskegee Airman. There's very powerful stories that I get to be told them. And these men are in their 90s. Some of them have, are in their 100s. And time is, is very, very short. And we've got to get these stories out. We've got to educate This is amazing. It's amazing. But hey, Annie, just some lighter you're, 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 yes? you're kind of drifting in and out, Annie. Um, um, I shouldn't be. That's but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got the whole signal here. Anyway, yes, you're totally right. And, you know, Annie, I want to mention my father has passed away. But my father uh, entered the war uh, the day after Christmas of 1941. And his platoon was the first platoon into Japan after it was uh, deemed uh, safe to go into Hiroshima. And that that is amazing when you think back on it. As a kid, you just don't think about that. But he was in the entire war in the infantry. That is just like, you can't even fathom that. Uh, there were no really, okay, you did two years, go. That that, <laughs> that didn't happen. I mean, 
and he was in the Pacific. And it just really is amazing. He's not a uh, he's not alone in what he did. I mean, it's just unbelievable to uh, you know. Uh, and and think well, about this. Think about when we watch those films on D-Day of storming the beach and all those bodies floating. I mean, those are somebody's son. They're, you know, those are that, there's a mom and dad, a wife, a girlfriend, a kid. I mean, who is? That's the, I mean, I mean that is their family member. It's not just, you know, it, it, that says everything. That these people sacrificed their life. So right now, at this moment, we could be doing Southern Sense on Blog Talk Radio. Absolutely. And Warport points out that it was only a handful of pilots that fought in World War II. You know, it, it took so long. It took two years to train these pilots and to have them go up, and many of them were shot down on their first or second sorties. A lot of them, if they made it to 35 or 40, was a miracle. And the bomber pilots took the greatest hit. And he points out that the uh, Polish uh, also flew in World War II, and I again refer back to the movie Battle of Britain, uh, where the Polish that they showed them actually, you know, uh, fighting up there. Uh, they did speak some English, you know. They just made it as if they didn't, so they didn't have to listen to the British commanders and follow their orders. They were a little sneaky about that, <laughs> but the Polish did fight. And what happened was when they were shot down. Uh, they didn't realize that they're not Germans because they weren't speaking English. If they were shot down over Britain, they were taken into custody until it was sorted out. You know, a lot of these guys risked their necks on both sides of the English Channel just because they, English wasn't that good or they didn't speak it. So it's a lot of very, very interesting stories. And i got a thunderstorm coming in right behind me, so I hope I don't lose uh, power here. Uh, but I wanted to change the subject a little, Michael, because... Uh, about 15 minutes, Karen should be calling in. Uh, I wanted to get a little humor into the show because we started off so seriously. Um, I don't know if anyone heard about the Straight Pride Raid. Uh, there is going to be a Straight Pride Raid in the city of Boston. And the community tried, some people in the community tried to stop it. And the city of Boston, the mayor, happened to be a Democrat, stood up and he said, uh, no. He said the city of Boston cannot deny a permit based upon an organization's values. He said uh, the organizers of Straight Pride Parade don't have a permit yet, but are working to amend their application for permits to host a public event. He did not say what those amendments entail. Whatever outside groups may try to do, our values won't change. He said, I invite each and every person to stand with us and show that love will always prevail. Join us in a celebration Saturday for the At Boston Pride Parade and in the fight for progress and equality for all. Hooray for him. Someone gets it. It's not about your, your, your sexual orientation or your value. It's, you're asking for a city permit to assemble, whether it's a tea party um, or I, I don't no Black Lives Matter, we should have an equal opportunity to publicly express our voice. 
And this mayor of Boston saying, hey, listen, you stand up for straight people. They stand up for the LBGTQXYZ community. You should have an equal voice in the public arena. And I agree. Annie? Oh, my friends, I think we lost Annie. <laughs> As she said, a storm was brewing in, or she's just it's kind of drifting, just just drifting in or out. Um, if you're in the chat room and you can hear my voice, at least let me know. Uh, one of the most, uh, um, I got to read something, um, kind of keeping on topic with what Annie said. Um, I got a message from a friend, and uh, he was talking about a post uh, that was put in the local uh, – it, it was put on Facebook and uh, removed. They said it was insensitive. But uh, here's how here's how it reads. We live in a society where homosexuals lecture us on morals. Transvestites lecture us on the human biology. Baby killers lecture us on human rights, and socialists lecture us on economics. That just sounds so true. I mean, it, that is just spot on. Uh, many of which, um, of these individuals who continuously vote for higher taxes, never pay taxes. Um, you know, they just they don't. They simply do not own a home. Uh, renters, obviously, in many ways, pay property tax as well as homeowners. But I'm talking about individuals who really, basically, they don't pay a lot in taxes. And they're complaining about somebody not paying their fair share. I mean, that to me, that that is, abs- that, that is absolute insanity. Um, but it is what it is. And then they will call you a homophobe or well, whatever the whatever the uh, the buzzword name-calling is. And oftentimes, if you stop to think about it, they don't really even have um, – uh, they don't really have a focus uh, in moving forward. Uh, they don't really even have a topic. Um, Annie, we, we, we see that you posted in there. We're waiting for you when you get back. But – They wait for the so-called leadership to basically set the agenda. What is their opinion on uh, issue A, B, or C? Well, they're going to wait for somebody in their leadership to tell them what it is. Then they're going to repeat what they said word for word because they don't have an opinion. Uh, It's that simple. So, (laughs) oh, yes, Uh, CM. Uh, Northwest nonsense is right. But anyway, that's how it works. And uh, if you are not, uh, you know, LGBT, to which which I don't believe in any of these labels. It's very, very clear in our constitutional rights, our, our Bill of Rights. It's very, very clear in the Declaration that everyone is created equal. You are entitled to life and liberty with the pursuit of happiness. Other than that, you are entitled to nothing. That's it. And when individuals say, well, uh, I, I saw a sign recently. It said Sharia law is a right. 
excuse me, it's a right, and it was a woman who was holding up the sign. Uh, stupidity is at an all-time high. Um, and if it's a right, then maybe she should go somewhere where they respect that right. Uh, you know, Palestine and uh, some of these other wonderful countries, or whatever you want to call them, that uh, where they have Sharia law. So, I mean, it is what it is. So, I sometimes, uh, I sometimes find myself wondering how it is that these individuals can have such a uh, uh, a political opinion on topics or issues. Now, not really, t- but an issue, but uh, on topics. How can they have those individual opinions when really they haven't even experienced anything? Uh, You know, they're just way too young in life. Uh, Keep in mind, it is these people that, uh, when I say these people, I'm talking about the individuals. um, They spit on veterans when they came home from Vietnam. Uh, They called them baby killers. They treated them like dirt. Um, And... This is their their children now. Uh, we're getting Annie coming back, but basically, it, Annie, you you back? Basically, in a nutshell, these people have never even. Okay, great. These people have never really experienced. Uh, you missed it, Annie. I'm good, but they've never really experienced anything in real life, and they're puppets. They're just puppets of uh, a deep state or or a regime. Looking to take power. Good to have you back, Annie. I I basically uh, haven't stopped talking since you left. If that surprises you. (laughs) Not the least bit. Well, my my point being is that um, everything we talked about as far as with D-Day, the the, the LGBT community should should be so proud of what our veterans did. And I I read something when we lost you, uh, knowing you'd be back. And I'll read it again so you can hear this. We live in a society when homosexuals lecture us on on morals. Transvestites lecture us on human biology. Baby killers lecture us on human rights. And socialists lecture us on economics. I mean, it's just so true. These people probably haven't even changed their diapers yet. Uh, And basically, their parents who spit on our veterans, who called them baby killers, who really treated them like absolute dirt, it is now their kids and their grandkids that pick up right where they have left off. Uh, Go ahead, Annie. Sorry, I didn't mean that. No, how many much freedoms and liberties that we enjoy um, that we just take for granted? We don't realize the actual cost of it. And uh, it's a shame. Unless we have people like you and I out there to remind people every single chance we have, it'll be forgotten. They'll rewrite history for us. We can't let that happen. Well, Ronald Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan didn't, he repeated this, he didn't invent it, that freedom is no more than a generation away. But it's very, very true. It isn't. And um, I often, I oftentimes point out to a, a group in Grand Rapids, um, Miss Hugh Bellis, they're, they're protesters, and they go to City Hall, and they shut down the meetings in City Hall. 
Then they go to the county meetings, and they shut down the meetings in the county because the elected officials are gutless and spineless and don't do anything. Okay, they have a political cause. I get it. But then they go out on the street and block traffic. Now, if that's not just a group of anarchists and troublemakers, I don't know what is. Okay, so they, they're upset at the county for whatever it is politically the county is doing. So they go to the city hall, they're upset at whatever it is the city is doing. So let's go stop traffic. I, I, I mean, sooner or later, somebody's not going to be stopping for these uh, individuals, and that will be that. Well, we'll see. It's snowflakes out there. Nope. We'll see. Anyway, I was starting to get into some lighter news, but I think in a few minutes we're going to have our guest calling in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, go ahead. Um, let's, let's move over to the lighter news to your guest gets back. I, uh, the Mike Farage show is officially over, and we hand it back to our, our host. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just put a backup phone number into the uh, into the uh, studio, so if you see that, Mike, it's uh, me. Uh, it's not someone calling in. It's just in case I lose power again, because we've got a bad thunderstorm coming in. You know, it's been raining nonstop for several days now, and it's, it's, I'm starting to shrink. <clears throat> anyway, I had been talking about the Boston Pride uh, thing. Um, lo and behold, CNN and Rachel Maddow are really shocked and surprised that her ratings are at an all-time new low. I mean, she's even worse than Al Sharpton now. Surprise, surprise. Wow. Are you surprised, Mike? Uh, no, I am. Are, are you kidding me? Um, first and foremost, um, I, I don't know why anyone would watch that in the first place. But um, after two years of hearing, you know, Trump is about to be in handcuffs and looking forward to the day that he does that. Well, you're a cop. You would know that when you cuff somebody and you walk them to the car and somebody's like watching them like the procession. Uh, all of a sudden, guess what? Um, there's really nothing no crimes broken. There's nothing you can charge him with. Um, that's Rachel Maddow. That is the mainstream media. So why would you even listen to him again? Um, you know, these people just built this up to be something that it was not. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Just that button. Ah. I don't know if I just doing this. Bear with me for whatever reason. It's been taking oh, away. no problem. Anyway. You must be calling in on what they referred to back in the day, and you were too young to remember. You're, you're too young to remember this. What they call a rotary phone, a dial phone. I wasn't too young to remember that. <laughs> no, if you saw in my kitchen, I've got one of those where you lift up that little cone type receiver, hold it to your ear, and speak into the tube that comes out of the phone box itself. You ever see that in the old movies? I have that hanging up um, in my kitchen. I actually took a phone call on it today. <laughs> oh, really? I remember when you yeah. were saying that one no, time when I was co-hosting, and I said, a what? You said a rotary phone. I said, and I I thought it was like a computer or something, and you're laughing at me. <laughs> I remember that, and then I saw one on a wall at a bar, and I said, "Wow, is that a rotary phone?" And the guy's like, "Yeah, what do you think it is, you idiot?" And I'm like, "Oh, I just asked the question." <laughs> you're gonna look on YouTube and and see in the word rotary phone and teenagers, and look at these two teenage kids. I think they're about fifteen, sixteen. 
trying to figure out how to use a rotary phone. It is hysterical. Oh, my goodness. I, w- I saw it, and I was laughing my butt off. <laughs> I could not figure out yeah. how to use it. You know, we've, we've really done some – we've really had some great laughs, Annie, and so we've done some amazing shows. I'll tell you a show, Annie, that I'll never forget, that you just crushed it. If you recall, you you sponsored a hole at a golf outing for handicap, or not or for for disabled. You were talking about a guy with no legs or no arms, and he was kicking everyone's ass on the golf course. Um, no, that was, you were that was broadcasting guy. From- that was that was the that was the master sergeant. <clears throat> that was Cat Island Golf Course, and it was for the Independence Fund, uh, which is helps uh, wounded warriors. Uh, with either PTSD or with medical equipment that they need. Uh, they bend over backwards. They even have a retreat that they do uh, once a year for the Wounded Warriors. Um, that was, yeah, that was for the Independence Fund, which has gone nationwide and is doing a phenomenal job. I went to uh, reach out to the head of it and uh, bring him back onto the show. But it looks like we may have our guest up in the studio here. Let me bring her stuff forward that to the back. And I do believe, I do believe, this is our friend Karen. Karen, I'm going to mispronounce your last name. I do this to every single one of our guests. I'm going to say Sigamund. Sigamund. Sigmund, just really super simple. Yep, Karen Sigmund. I, Can I, you hear me okay? You something that's more than three. I got you clearly. You give me something more than four Good. letters. <laughs> I'm gonna muff it. <laughs> oh, yeah. just fine. You know, you were, you were um, a tweeter, uh, not a tweeter. You were a tweet trend. You were like one one of the number one trends on Twitter recently uh, because you stood up for your conservative values, and for that, something happened. You have been a Tea Party and a conservative activist for a long time, but man, <laughs> they started it big time when they decided to, to to put their liberal policies over your conservative values. They did, and not just over my conservative values, um, just over me as a teacher, putting aside my conservative values. They let my conservative values trump any other characteristic of me, so it's all been kind of an astounding thing to have happen. Well, you were a teacher for a long time, but because you were telling the truth to your students and exercising, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, your right of free speech and also expressing your conservative values, they fired you. Right. Right. So I've been a teacher for almost 20 years. I've been at this particular school Four, um, I started teaching here after I moved back to California. It's the school I went to as a kid, so it has a very special place in my heart. It's an independent school, lest anybody think that these things only happen in public schools. I am conservative. I am the president of the American Freedom Alliance, and from what I'm understanding, it's not even anything I said in the classroom but being a conservative even outside the classroom on social media and as president of the American Freedom Alliance, standing up 
for America, really, um, speaking with pride and praise about Western civilization. There's a quote that was cited to me as being one of the real problems and one of the reasons that they decided to not renew my teaching contract. I praised Western civilization and as having provided the greatest freedoms, the greatest prosperity, the greatest opportunities of anywhere at any time, and this was seen as hostile and is one of the reasons cited for my no longer being allowed to teach here. Very odd, considering we have teachers who are literally activists in the classroom, who wear resist t-shirts and so on. That kind of activism is fine. My speaking even outside the classroom in support of America and Western civilization and freedoms and you know the right for all of us to have those freedoms, um, that's what got me terminated. So it's it's scary, it's sad, it's angry making to lose my job, my livelihood, because of my political views, even, you know, did I express them in the classroom? No doubt. But, um, but it's simply standing up for America and Western civilization that was the problem. Well, now because of that, there was a uh, trending hashtag, I stand with Karen, and you weren't even right. aware of it until you threw it up on Twitter. Right. I know. That's, I, I had never, never in my wildest dreams would I have thought I'd become a hashtag. But what happened to me is happening to so many of us, and we're all being shut out of the public space, not just social media. People are being T-platformed, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of that, and Google numbers are being fudged and so on to keep our voices down and suppressed. But we're also losing our jobs. Since this happened and since I became a hashtag, I keep hearing from people who who have been fired, who have been let go, who have been threatened, or who have gotten ulcers, literally ulcers, from just the stress of keeping their own political viewpoints to themselves in the workplace. In a workplace that has nothing to do with politics. So we... And somebody else made this point. We are self-censoring. That people getting ulcers have been self-censoring. And during my time as both a teacher and the president of the American Freedom Alliance, people would say, aren't you courageous? And I'd say, what do you mean courageous? I'm just, I'm living according to my beliefs, and I'm a good teacher, and I'm not doing anything counter to what a good education is. I'm not being subversive on the face of it, but of course, being a conservative is subversion in itself right now. And that's what's very scary. So yeah, becoming having a hashtag, it, it's getting worse. It's getting so much worse. I think the election of Trump Oh, Sorry, say yeah, that again? The election of Trump has, has brought it out. I said the election of Trump has really brought it out. Um, but I had lived up in the yes. Boston area back in the uh, early 80s. And I talk about being ostracized socially. Yeah, good Lord, the second anyone heard number one, the New York dialect come out, 
uh, but your conservative oh, views right. on certain issues. Oh, talk about shunning. And it's, it's not yes. just in global Boston anymore. It's everywhere. You know, you have people right. being beaten up the street because they're wearing mega hats. It's, it's it is, very it's, it's scary. Worse, worse and and more violent, as you say. They are getting beat up. Um, they are. Look at what's happened to Sarah Sanders, to um, to uh, Candace Owens, and and now it's happening all over the place. They're being um, turned out of restaurants. They're having things thrown at them. All kinds of assault, like the um, Hayden in Berkeley, the rioting at Berkeley. The rioting all over the place when a conservative walks on campus, the de- disinviting of conservatives on campus, the whole campus culture in universities is very anti-conservative, right? It's supposed to be that's supposed to be the place where all views are heard and where we, you know, are, are able to have intellectual discussion about things. Well, not at all, and it's not just universities. I teach at a high school. It's it's high schools too that have to protect that have to they feel that they have to protect the echo chamber dominated by the left because any voice other than the left has to be shut out and I really think one of the problems just to be honest is I'm actually a really nice person and I'm a good teacher <laughs> and I love my students and I'm exactly the opposite of the racist bigoted Nazi um, hater that the left portrays us as. And as soon as you have one data point that's counter to the narrative, you have to realize that that narrative might not be true. And so my very presence with my actual niceness and my tolerance and my wanting um, to, I honor all my students' viewpoints and, you know, we have respectful discussions and so on, that puts the lie to this narrative that we're all evil haters, and that's one reason that they have to shut me out. You know, it, it, we need voices like yours in the classroom, and it's important. So I ask you, are you going to go after the school and sue them for your job? I am, actually. I am going after them, not just for me. Uh, yes, it's my livelihood, it's my job, it's what I do, and, and I'm actually a good teacher, and I think it's important to have a, an array of voices in the classroom. Even the mission statement of the school says students should learn to see things from a number of viewpoints. Well, not if you fire or discontinue a viewpoint, the one viewpoint that's different. It's So what have the students learned? They've learned to shut up if your viewpoint is different. They've they've learned that there's only one narrative that's acceptable, and that's the left, and that if you speak up counter to it, you might lose your job. So they're losing. They're they're uh, learning that as a lesson, which of course is part of what the left wants to teach. If you dare stray, you will suffer. So I'm going after the school not only for my own livelihood but because I think it's important for other voices to be heard. I think it's important for my students to see that you can fight back. But I'm also fighting back for all of us who have been who have been and continue to be shut out. It's part of what the left does and it has to stop. That we we can't let them continue to do this. <laughs> 
So, yes, I am. And um, we're going to see how that sorts itself out. But also with the American Freedom Alliance, we're going. To, there's a couple projects that we're going to undertake. Things that people have looked at in universities in terms of ideological um, bias and so on. We're going to take it down to the high school level and start looking at local Los Angeles schools, independent, charter, public, and see. Uh, there's a lot of data that you can glean about. Uh, voter registration and so on. And then we'll dig a little bit deeper, find out what goes on in the classroom, find out um, just to see what's going on because we all know, at least anecdotally, that there's a tremendous bias. But I think it'll be very interesting to have it actually documented. And then we would like to create, we're just talking about this at the early stages, but some kind of a clearinghouse to protect other teachers like me to protect other voices in the classroom and ensure that our students get exposed to more than just one viewpoint. Well, and plus, we're nice people. <laughs> that we are. That we are. You know, <laughs> I, I grew up in an age. I grew up in an age where we still had that discourse. Where when you talked about right. politics, we get all sides. And then at that point, you can decide which way you leaned more than the other. Uh, you were taught exactly what the creed was of the Republican Party, of the Democratic Party. At that right. time, there was no Socialist Party, no Communist Party at those, that time. But you were taught what socialism is, was and is, and what communism was and is, and you were shown how the government worked. So you've got to have a fully rounded picture. And today's kids... If they're leaning towards socialism or communism, they have not been towards the truth. And it's such, a, it's, it's such a shame that that's happening. And yesterday was the 75th, 75th anniversary right. of the initial invasion, which lasted from June 6th through June 12th. And France was not fully uh, liberated until August. And these are things that people don't understand. That was true fascism. And Stalin at that time, right. communism. And if we're not teaching history, then how can we Right, right. I just read a statistic most students don't opinion. know. Right, they, exactly. They're, they're, it's, it's emotion, not thought. Whatever they, their political leanings are, are not based on knowledge because they are deprived of the other view. And I'm so glad you brought up D-Day because... And and I really appreciate your talking about how the, it was a there was a time duration of it. It wasn't like they landed and then this thing happened. Six days of horror, and then still still fighting back um, to gain France's territory back. Still took a long time. Fascism is is something that our students do not learn about at all, and. I read a statistic, most students have no idea what D-Day was. And it's really scary when you, you know, all they hear is war is bad. Well, war can be the very, can be exactly the answer when other people want to impose their will upon you. Even this, this great nation was founded 
by a war. So war is horrible, no question about it, but but surrender can bring much worse. And, yeah, yeah, D-Day, that our students don't learn what, what happened. They don't learn about how tyranny comes in with baby steps. It's never just a one fell swoop and, oh, my gosh, look, we're living somehow all of a sudden under some totalitarian regime. It's always... It always comes in slowly. It comes in with small erosions of freedom, beginning with free speech. It always comes in cloaked in compassion, and this will be good for everybody, just like some of our Democrat politician friends are saying now. Don't you care about the people? Don't you care about the planet? Don't you care about the poor? Don't you care about health care? Don't you care about right? everything is cloaked in this kind of thing? where the policies that they want to implement, of course, do nothing to alleviate those problems and everything to just take control. So without learning history, without having those antennae, you know, tuned in to be aware of what happens, you wind up with an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who really feels that she's doing a good thing, but it's all based on stuff that she was taught. You're from Boston. I also lived in Boston at that time, um, and my degrees are from Boston University. She went to a really great university, and this is what they taught her. And that's what our education system is doing right now. It's indoctrinating, and it cranks out lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of little AOCs who wrap themselves in this cloak of don't you care and under the guise of that, want to take control over everything. If you don't know history, this is what you feel. You feel righteousness. You feel you're doing right by everybody. You're being the change you want to see in the world. You're doing all of that. And we, it's our fault, we we who are a little bit older, who are, have not been ensuring that our students get a real education, that AOC believes these things is a failing on our part and we've we've got to not let that happen anymore that's an absolute truth and i was looking for something in my desk but i did, i must have put it somewhere else <clears throat> i i bought the bison and so i've had the same perfect constitution on me since 1976 dog ah wonderful I know yeah but i also carry a constitution with me and this is a problem people don't know our history right and the fact this is a public not a democracy and it's gotten to the point where right. people don't understand this fundamental truth they will not realize how government encroachment and the tyranny spreading throughout our american society today is going to affect right. their very daily lives and here, here's a perfect thing i got contacted by someone from town hall asking if I would co-author an editorial, which I agreed to, and I sent my uh, my portion of it over to him, so I'm hoping the next couple of days will be published. But it seems that uh, HHS, the Health and Human Services, wants to yeah. regulate the way in which Medicare drug prices are being done, and they want to follow European socialist plan. The way they do it over in Europe has stymied the innovation of the drug treatment. Innovation. Therapy. And if they do that here, if they do that here, 
we're going to see the drug industry not come up with anything new. Drug prices are not going to get any better. Things are going to get worse. Supply of drugs are going to drop. And this is something that's going to affect every single person, whether it's an aspirin on the shelf or it's a new heart disease. And I, I, when I turned around with the article, you and I, when we make our arguments, we use logic. When the left right. does it, they use emotion, which you, you do. So I said, right. let me throw emotion into it because I am on Medicare. I am a senior citizen. I am disabled, even though I try to remain as active as possible of doing something like this. Um, without the health care we have in this nation, I could have died several times over. I came very oh close. My. And if it wasn't these innovations, I would not be here today. In just a matter of a number of days, just a little bit later on this month, I'm going to have a new device placed in my heart to prevent me from having another stroke. Without Isn't this device, without the innovation of American companies, I would not be here. So it's going to save my life. It's going to get me off of medication, thus saving the insurance company money for something they don't have to dole out. If they do this, if HHS does this would not be available to anyone else, and they would not have the sense of a peaceful and happy life. I threw that into the editorial. So I said, let me play the emotional angle and say, without That's we have terrific. Say, even as restricted as And I said, if you want to do something to lower the cost of Medicare Part B, loosen the requirements of the FDA, allow things to come to market faster, allow the free market principles not socialistic ideals to thrive. Without them, we will not have innovation, we will not have progress, and we will not have low cost. You're so know right. Our, and in the argument... And no what? It's to go ahead. In the, in the argument about um, medicine and health care and insurance and all of that, which of course, gets completely conflated. That piece that you just mentioned never is brought up. It's, you know, Europe versus here, isn't this, we're horrible and they're wonderful and they cover everything and we don't cover anything. And high cost of this, that, and the other thing, what they don't realize, honestly, is exactly that point that you just made. With the, As long as there's a free market and profit incentive, that's where innovation comes from. And if you look at all the innovations of drugs, I would say a good 90% of innovative treatments, medicines, procedures, comes from two places, America, where we have the profit incentive for this kind of thing, and Israel, which also does. So much innovative medicine comes from Israel. And then a handful come from elsewhere. But things that we've taken for granted, aspirin, you mentioned. Aspirin was one of the greatest inventions of all time. That was done in Germany, but while they had free market. So as soon as you remove the profit incentive, as soon as you remove competitive pressures, you wind up with, as you say, no innovation. And our innovations, by the way, don't just serve us here in America, not that anybody has to care about this, but the entire globe benefits from it 
even places where they don't have innovation. So if you lose that innovation in America, it's over for medical advances pretty much everywhere. And that's very, very, very scary because we, we need that. We need somewhere. You know, America has been the last best hope or the, um, the, the cradle of freedom and so on. But as soon as you start killing that, that light goes out, and I don't know how you restart it. I really don't know. I don't think you would be able to. Because right. I don't think anyone yeah, understands what the free market is anymore. Right, exactly. When you yeah. kill it, especially if you kill it with this notion of compassion. I mean, remember what they brought Obamacare in on? 35 million uninsured. Well, it, what, insurance was never really the issue if it, to the left. If they really wanted to insure 35 million, they could have expanded Medicare and been done with it. But that was never it. It was to bring us all to this one very low level of access to health care, but not to actually provide good health care. So again, they cloak themselves in compassion. Don't you care about these 35 million? Many of whom were teenagers, many of whom could be covered in all kinds of ways but opted not to, many of whom had just lost it because of a job transition but and then were coming back to it. Um, none, none of it really made that much sense. And of course, if that had been the issue, they would have been tracking how many people Obamacare brought into the insurance fold, which is why they, of course, never actually kept statistics on it, because it's never actually been about that. So, again, everything that they do is is cloaked in something as it's smoke and mirrors, it's slate of hand, it's deflection, and never intended to solve the problem that they claim it's going to solve. And in the meantime, we'll break things, as Obamacare has been breaking our health care system and our health insurance system. As you say, I don't know how you go back. Once There are states where there's only one health insurance company left. And now what do you do? How do you rebuild competition? You, you can't. So as with medicine, so too with education, ensuring that there's only one voice, ensuring there's no competition. It's never intended to um, actually improve that thing that they're pretending to improve, in this case education. It's all about indoctrination. It's all about power and control. It's about dominating the narrative. It's about silencing other voices. All of it, all of it, because they know that only when you silence options does the left have a chance at all of succeeding? In a in a fair fight? Absolutely not. Which is, do you remember, was it John Gruber, the, uh, the MIT, um, one of the architects of Obamacare, who said, of course we lied to the American people. Of course we did. This is what they do. They know they have to, and they feel no compunction whatsoever to do so. Well, you know, there is a point being made in the chat room, uh, but I think a little history needs to be pulled up on this because we were talking about World War II, where uh, Germany and the Soviet Union had invented uh, a lot of these modern revolutionary new uh, weapons, but they actually were stealing technology from us first 
and then using slave labor, forcing them into, you know, creating these new and more wonderful things. And they had a need, a need for conquest. Uh, whereas here yeah. in a free market, you know, uh, economy, we're not centered on weaponry. We're centered on better living. Uh, there's there's a difference. You either have a de- death culture or a culture of right. life and love. And right. that's, that's and, where and that is a, is. Right. And what the Soviet Union did, and I know um, the Germans did this as well, if you throw almost your entire economy at something, you will get there. Um, I know that the, the missiles that were developed in northern Germany, their entire economy was focused on the military machine. At some point, of course, that will reap benefits. Will it reap benefits in the same way that, a, you know, over time a free market economy will? No. And the Soviet Union, you're right, they stole. They only had the atom bomb because of theft. And, again, they, they were able to build missiles, and they, they got um, Sputnik up before we did, but you couldn't buy toilet paper. So it, it's all a matter of trade-offs. And it's not to say that no innovations can be made elsewhere, but by far greater innovations are made where people are free. And in those places where they did make those, um, in in the little enclaves, they treated their scientists very well. So, but, But then, yes, they were constructed by slave labor. So nothing is as black and white as, you know, there's always gray area. But by far, innovate, far more innovation comes where people are free, can do this with benefit to themselves than where they're not. Yeah, and it happens at a much faster pace. And benefits a wider yeah. swath of people than if you have, like, a military-only centered economy uh, where we just right. – Right, and, and, and the goal, too – Right. And the goal, too, is to have a citizenry, to me anyway, is to have a, a free country, a citizenry that, that is prosperous, that, that has opportunity, that um, is able to, that has individuals that are able to achieve what individuals should be allowed to achieve, as you, as you said, a, a culture of life, not death, a culture of happiness, a culture of pursuit of happiness at the very least, a culture where when we're born, the sky is the limit, as we always tell our children, you can be anything you want to be, where people aren't held back by circumstances of their birth. Yeah, you can focus your entire everything on building something, but to me, another goal of a nation is to provide the greatest good um, to, to individuals, and that's Free, that's freedom, that's self-governing nation, it's, it's our Declaration of Independence, it's our Constitution, it's our First Amendment, Second, Third, Fourth, you know, all the amendments provide all those safeguards of our own freedoms. And, yeah, you can, you can throw all kinds of things to build something else, but no thank you. I was I was pointing out to somebody I saw a sign a female a female was holding the sign it said sharia law is a right 
and I thought, you need to go where they have Sharia law. But, I mean, this is how right. indoctrinated the stupid are. I mean, that that person will contribute nothing to society. Uh, I mean, they're just that Sharia law is a right. Uh, where did she learn that from? Right, and that really is the conflict, isn't it? The Constitution versus Sharia law most certainly everybody has the right to exercise their religion, but not where their laws come in conflict with ours. There's plenty of countries you can go ahead and and live under Sharia. For a woman to take that on is singularly ridiculous. And I would just add one more layer, that if, if that person happened to be homosexual, it's downright suicidal. So... Yeah, I don't know. Again, people aren't educated, and to wrap themselves in some in ridiculousness like that, or or celebrating abortion, whether or not you think we should have a right or or so what, whatever to to having an abortion at what stage, day one, a week forty, at least can we recognize what it actually is? And so much of this is, again, cloaked in ignorance. It's cloaked in um, emotion. It's not cloaked in fact. And it's, you know, and you ask the question, this person contributes, or made the point, this person contributes nothing, I would say it's actually worse than that. What they contribute is, is destruction of what makes this country great and what makes this country great is pretty much counter to everything that Sharia stands for. Very scary times. You know, it, uh, I, I think what they're doing to us little bit by little bit is dehumanizing us. In Very much so. A youth, in abortion, it's a zagite. It is not a baby. It's not a right. human being. So by dehumanizing and it's the same thing. Back in the 70s, I, I talked about this a couple of times, they came out with this video game, and the video games were all brand new. And I was still learning how to play Donkey Kong. They came out with this one where you drive a car and you run people over randomly. And the more people you run over, you, you get more points. And my best friend and her sister were laughing at this game, playing it. And I, I said, this is horrible. She said, it's just a game. I said, you don't understand. Right, right. Something worse, and now we have kids going to schools shooting them up, right. not looking at their fellow students as a fellow human being. And I talk about people sitting at a restaurant, and their faces are all buried in their smart devices. They're not looking at their fellow diner and having a conversation. And the more we dehumanize ourselves as society, the more we'll go to devolve and then fall under the complete thumb of tyranny. It was the only way out of dehumanizing government state, oh, stop killing each other and we will now control right. your lives from birth to death. And that's where we're at. Right. It's very, very scary. It really is very scary. Uh, and I'm so sorry, but I do have to go. But it's been so wonderful talking to you. I hope you'll have me on again when I have a little more time. And absolutely. And absolutely. Um, just if, I can find, if I can find you at you. American... Oh. I just want to get out her website, Mike, uh And people can also find you up on uh, uh, Twitter, AF Alliance. Yeah, AF, AF Alliance, and I'm on Facebook Karen, at Karen Sigmund, and American Freedom Alliance has a Facebook page and group as well. 
it's been really terrific talking to you, and I and I do hope you'll have me on again. Um, oh, I do. And I'll oh, I just friend yeah, I just yeah. sent you a friend request. Real quick, before you go, how were your yeah. teacher evaluations before they canned you? Normally they're perfect, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, well, we have a concern or inappropriate. Right, no, I, I hadn't heard anything at all. We don't have reviews as, um, as in public schools or as I had had it when I taught university, but my students generally like me a lot and they know I love them. I had not heard at all, ever, of a complaint. The first I heard was that they weren't renewing me because, and and this is what I was told, because they had received a number of complaints. If that's the case, I was not made aware of them. So thank you so much, and I'm going to um, accept your friend request. <laughs> it's been a real Thank joy. Thanks so much. All right. Take care, Karen. God bless. Bye. And really, I'd love to have be on again. Thanks. Bye. Oh, you know you will be. That's how they. Uh, that's how they do it, Annie. You know. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, right. well, yeah, we, I, we've heard some of inappropriate behavior. We have to let you go. That's how they do it. Absolutely. Uh, we got a couple of people still in the studio, so if our next guest is in on the line, please press one, and I know which phone number you are here, because it's coming up as a Skype call. Because um, I know you are our next guest, Tony Price, is going to be calling in via Skype, uh, so please press one, and I'll be happy to. Because uh, I don't know which one to un to unmute. Uh, <laughs> that's the funny thing about Skype; they don't always tell you what number the person's calling from. Uh, but, yeah, she's well, got herself an uphill battle, and it's a great organization she works with, um, American Freedom Alliance. So, uh, yeah, it's funny because when well, I, I got you know, this uh, email. Good for her. Well, I, I got this email from someone from over at Town Hall asking me if I wanted to co-author this uh, column, this editorial, and uh, it's... It's a fantastic. His part is really great because he is a researcher, and I added in there uh, everything I had mentioned to her. But my final thing I said there: if there are any walls we cry out to tear down, and this is one I wholeheartedly support. So a little shot in the arm about the debate over the wall. <laughs> tear down the wall of regulations and rules. <laughs> So I'm hoping that this does get published, you know, and I'd like to see see something like this out there. But uh, again, if you're uh, by the, in way, the studio and real quick, are our next Annie, guest, um, please press one. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. We had a guest in our hotel, and uh, they mentioned that uh, they're from Beaufort County, and I I told them to look you up. Um, they were going to, um, I think it was, uh, it wasn't. Um, What's what's the tourist the big tourist island there in South Carolina, um, where all the spring well, breakers go? Um, um, well, you got Hilton Head. Um, yes, they were going to Hilton Head, or um, no, they were going to Charleston. Excuse me. And I asked them, "You ever been to Anchilada's restaurant?" Because I remember your uh, some tea party groups used to have a gathering there. They said no. Of course, I said neither have I. But I heard it's really good. 
<laughs> Based on when you used to give those plugs, uh, you know, your various Tea Party groups all over the state, fighting, uh, having their meetings. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I've been to Angelada's. I think that was where we did the Michelle Bachman uh, interview from. Might have been from there. Oh, really? The ever so famous hang up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll never get that out of well, my head. Well, I, wait, honestly, uh, Annie, on, on, well, on the day uh, on the day of your passing at your viewing, I'm going to bring a phone. We're going to see who can slam the phone the loudest. <laughs> and I'm like, hello, hello, hello. Is anyone there? But you know that that says something when you when you are. Uh, at that time, I, I don't know if it was the Patriot Act or what it was, but still, and I, I respect that, Annie, as much as, uh, you know, you even, even with Congressman Sanford, you asked him about some inappropriate stuff in his past. And, and, and what good is having a show, whether it's blog, talk, radio, or your home alone, what good is it if you're not going to ask or you're not going to challenge these people to these questions because they're public servants? We tend to think, wow, it's really nice to have this person as a guest. But really, they're public servants. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I respect yeah. that, that you asked them that. Although I will say when you said that to Congressman Stan- Sanford, I, I, I was <laughs> – my feet got a little light. I thought, here we go again. <laughs> no, I said, Let, let's address the pink elephant in the room. And then I asked him about the affair. So, I'm – Pretty sure this might be our next guest. Let me just unmute this individual. I've got a Skype call here. Uh, to whom am I speaking? This is Tony Price calling. Can you hear me? Ah, that's the right. Like, yes, I can hear you. I got you in there, Tony. I wasn't sure. I have a couple of Skype calls here in, in the. Because uh, <laughs> I have a couple of Skype calls in the in the uh, studio here, so I didn't know which one was you. Uh, you are with the Gold Star Ride Foundation, so welcome aboard, Tony Price. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, I'm with the Gold Star Ride Foundation. That's the wonderful organization that uses motorcycles to take care of families that lost somebody in the military. Okay, and then what is it that you do? Well, I ride my motorcycle all over the country, and I find families that need something that would have been provided to them uh, by the hero who fell in the military. Uh, So if I get a phone call that says, my husband was killed before he could finish the treehouse for my five-year-old son, we'll get the treehouse done. If I get a call that says, uh, I don't have any money to go to college because our primary source of income disappeared, then we make arrangements for an education grant. If I get a, it, it doesn't make any difference what they ask us for, as long as uh, it, it is something that they wouldn't have to ask us for if the fallen hero had not fallen. Does that make any sense? So we're just filling the gap. Like you said, building a treehouse tree or to help someone obtain the education that they desire. But can you fill out all needs, or do you have to just simply pick and choose? I didn't hear the first part of your question. Can you repeat just the first half there? Yeah, I'm glad yeah, I'm glad a thunderstorm coming in, so I, I I lost power halfway through the first part of the show. Um, I said, 
do you are you able to handle all requests, or do you have to just pick and choose those that you feel you can fill the best? Well, we try to pick and choose based on first come first serve. That's just kind of the an arbitrary rule that sometimes it's subject to change. If I find out that somebody's living on the street, um, that's going to get moved to the front of the line. But the reality is that the services that we provide cost money, and we don't always have enough money to provide all the services that we want to provide. Sometimes we have to ask them to wait, uh, and then we go out and try to raise a little bit more money, and then we come back and take care of them again. Um, that's just the way that we do it. At this point in our um, in our growth period, I'll say, at, at this point in, in where we are, we've been around for about four years. We've accomplished a, an incredible amount of good work, uh, but we are not financially independent. We're still relying on donations, and we still get donations, and we still hand them out to the Gold Star families as we meet them. Not every family has the same request. Not every family has a financial need. Um, so we'll just do whatever they need for us to do. I got a phone call two days ago that said uh, my father was killed. He, was, uh, he served honorably in the Army, and the American Legion is going to provide him with a full honors burial and, and uh, funeral service. And we wonder if you could just come along and give us a sh- small parade of motorcycles. So on Monday morning, I get to saddle up at 5 a.m. and ride my motorcycle five hours to get to the funeral on time. And then we're going to be riding a parade of motorcycles from the church to the cemetery. It's probably going to take about 15 minutes. And, um, and then I'll get on my motorcycle and I'll ride back to our offices, which is another five-hour ride. So I'll ride my motorcycle for the better part of 10 or 11 hours just so I can make an appearance for 10 or 11 minutes. But that's just what we do. That particular family doesn't have a financial need, so they didn't ask us for anything, but they have an emotional need. So they asked us to fill that, and that's what we're going to do. Does that help, under, help, why, um, help you understand a little bit more? Yeah, why, yeah, why, a motorcycle? yeah, why a motorcycle, though? Because motorcycles attract attention. Did you happen to see the motorcycles that were riding through Washington, D.C. the day before Memorial Day? Oh, yeah. Uh, everybody My did. estimate was, yeah, my estimate was there was about 750,000 of them there, and I think they attracted a little attention. I was the one on the left three and a half hours into the parade. So I don't know if you paid any attention to that. I did, I did ride out to – I rode from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C. to be a part of that. And um, the motorcycles were four abreast going down the parade route, which went – uh, past the mall, past the Lincoln Memorial, and then in front of the Capitol. And from beginning to end, it took somewhere in the neighborhood of four and a half hours for all of those motorcycles to pass in front of the Capitol. And I think they, were, they ran for about an hour and a half after I passed it. They ran for about two and a half hours before I got there, and they kept going for another hour and a half after I was done. So I did ride in that parade, and they attract attention. They make some noise. They have their own... Um, uh, stigma if i can use that kind of a word they have their own reputation i tell you what um, another one of the organizations that i ride with is called the patriot guard riders and maybe you've heard of them but i tell you what if the patriot guard riders are making human wall out of leather that separates the funeral from the protesters who want to somehow protest the funeral in a way to make a statement that's anti-war 
I promise you, every one of those protesters will turn and go the other way when they see all that leather and they see all those chains and all that tattoos. We, we use motorcycles because they work. They attract attention. And they make a noise and they make a statement. And, and it's a good one. Uh, people who don't ride motorcycles or hang out with people who ride motorcycles, uh, by and large, still have the wrong impression of what it means to be a motorcyclist or a biker, as I like to use that term, biker. I've been riding motorcycles since I was nine years old. I've been, I'm almost done with six decades now. Um, so I got about 45 years experience or 46 years experience riding motorcycles. And I promise you, every bad rumor that you've heard about a biker is not true. Um, as much as it's not true with any organization, you still find once in a while you find a jerk. Uh, but by and large, I would rather hang out with bikers, certainly much more than politicians. You, one of the things that you find out about <laughs> hanging out with bikers is they have a tendency to tell you exactly what they're thinking, and it's always the truth. It's always the truth. You, not very often does that come from politicians. Politicians say whatever they need to say to get your vote. Bikers aren't interested in your vote. They're interested in respect. And, of course, that's, uh, I'm know, getting a little fun. off topic here. <laughs> I didn't call up to say, hey, I ride with the Gold Star Ride Foundation. Let me tell you all the great things there are about bikers. Um, it's awesome. I think it's great. <laughs> I, and, and you're uh, right. I tell you, you, what, do, uh, you do send a message uh, when those protesters, they, they like to think they're strong. They hear all that racket. Uh, they're hauling ass in the opposite direction and fast. That's always, that is always true. Here's another thing about bikers I'll tell you. Uh, a quick little statistic here. This is an unscientific statistic. That, uh, but if you take the part of the population that is military veterans and you take the part of the population that is motorcycle enthusiasts, and I'll say that instead of bikers, but if you take those as two distinct groups, they overlap more than any other two groups that you can put together in the United States. There are more bikers who are veterans and more veterans who are bikers than any other two groups that you can get to put together. So that's a kind of a little factoid. When I rode to uh, Washington, for example, I joined about 85 bikers in a group called the Veterans Awareness, the National Veterans Awareness Ride, NVAR. And you find them at nvar.us. They started riding in California, and I joined them in Indiana when we were, they were here in the Midwest. And then we rode together the rest of the way to Washington, D.C. And out of that group, 80 motorcycles going 70 miles an hour in a big, long snake down the freeway. We consumed a full mile of the road all at once going 70 miles an hour. It's pretty impressive to see. And that was before we got there. Uh, but uh, out of that group, <laughs> I think there was... Well, there, a couple of guys brought their wives and children, so not counting the children, which mounted to, I think, about six or seven people in that, that were in that group. So take the children out of it. Um, I think there was two people that were not veterans out of that entire group. And even further still, I think six out of ten of them were Vietnam veterans, which is a completely different well, animal you know, it, altogether. It's funny, it's, it's funny because motorcyclists have a stigma attached to them. And I used to always get strange looks when I would go riding past. I no longer ride because I've, I've 
my disabilities. Uh, but I enjoyed it. And when they saw the helmet come off and saw it was a girl, it's like, oh, wow. You know, so there is a stigmatism put it, uh, on them. But as you said, vast majority of them are either military. They're not part of a, a biker gang. You know, they're just good everyday Well, there's a lot people. of biker gangs out uh, there, yet, too. Yeah, but, but that doesn't mean that yeah, they're, but the, the whole you know, the biker that, gangs. No, but, but, but the, the, the connection to the military was following World War II. Because after World War II, you had all these vets all across the United States. And because they felt like social outcasts, a lot of them began to form these groups based around the motorcycle. Because the most common vehicle were either jeeps or motorcycles in the Army surplus that were being sold to civilian populations. So the veterans well, I think you, to having the I think you're onto something. Handle them. But this is just a simple historical fact. And that the well, I think you're onto something the there, but I think there's more to it. I think there's more to it than than the the points that you just made. The biggest point to that is now we call it post traumatic stress. The guys are coming back from the Middle East with post traumatic stress. Um, and we dropped the disorder. I'm not sure if you heard about that or not because we dropped the disorder because there's nothing disorderly about the human condition. So the post-traumatic stress is something that naturally occurs to human beings when they're um, exposed to extraordinarily stressful events. But, excuse me, back in those days, it, after World War II, they still had post-traumatic stress, except they called it shell shock. And one of the ways that those guys dealt with their shell shock was to get the rush that came from riding a motorcycle 80 miles an hour down a road that was built for cars to only go 30. And th- that was, it, it kind of created that uh, military biker um, community. And actually, uh, if, if you don't mind me plugging this, the Sturgis motorcycle rally is still is the biggest motorcycle rally in the world. And I haven't been there for four years myself. The last time I was there, it, it attracted 1.6 million motorcycles in a town of 2,000 people in South Dakota. So if you've never been there, there's, try to wrap your head around some of those numbers. Um, but that was started by five guys who just said, okay, every August, now that we're home from World War II, every August we're going to meet here and we're going to ride our motorcycles up and down the Black Hills and we're going to try to get to the top of Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is kind of in the center of all of that. Um, so, that yeah, it started out as five guys that were looking to recreate the rush that they got from fighting in the military. And now, like I said, four years ago when I was there, 1.6 million motorcycles showed up. So, yeah, there's a, a great deal of, of community between bikers and veterans. And the, you mentioned the term biker gangs. And, well, you know, they still exist, but they refer to themselves as clubs. And they're very easy to spot. Uh, if you see somebody wearing leather and on the back, Somewhere on their back, you see the letters MC. That means that they belong to a club. And a lot of them like to get organized and be part of a club. I wear the word independent on my leather, and all of the motorcycle clubs respect that. They see that I'm independent. I'm not part of any one particular club. So that means that they all let me in. And I relish, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful that they give me that kind of freedom and liberty. So that's why we take motorcycles. Now, we, attract, we attract a little attention. You know, the first time I did it, first time I rode a motorcycle for a Gold Star family, without getting too much into the story, because I could tell you the story and make it last an hour and a half all by itself. 
but the bottom line here is there was 125 motorcycles riding together, and we pulled up to the Gold Star family's house, and it was at the end of a cul-de-sac that was about a block long. The motorcycles barely fit in there. But, and I didn't know we were going to see a Gold Star family. I didn't know why we were stopped there. I thought we were on our way to a, you know, a bar or something because that's when you join a ride, you go to, from one bar to the next. But as I, I stopped my motorcycle, I look around, and there's like 10 houses there, and I'm watching them all pull their drapes shut, pull the curtains closed because they're worried about what all these bikers are going to do in their community. And what we ended up doing in the community was honoring a Gold Star widow who was in her 20s and had two kids, and she was cut off from benefits from the government because her husband had post-traumatic stress, and he ended his own life after being discharged from the hospital. And at the time that it happened, there was a no-suicide clause in the military contract with the government. If you took your own life, you were cut off. So he had post-traumatic stress because he watched his friend blow up over in Iraq, and he ended up taking his own life. And here's this woman in her 20s with two little kids who's looking at being a welfare mom because she got cut off. Her husband did what he was supposed to do. He protected us. He went and sacrificed his life. And it, when the, the battle with post-traumatic stress became too much, he did the only thing that he thought he could do. And it ended up that the government came in and said, yeah, sorry, we're going to keep the, whatever it is, $150,000 that we would normally give to you so you could go back to school. Anyway, our organization stood up, and, and uh, the, the guys that were running that organization, uh, all them guys in their biker gear, head-to-toe leathers with tattoos and cigarettes and sunglasses and bandanas and earrings and chains dangling off their belts, they all opened up their wallets, and we gave that young lady a college education. Now she's a, uh, an active part of her community, and she's providing something, a, a service that she's paid for that, so she can raise her family. That's what the bikers did that day. And that's why we use motorcycles to go out and do what we do. It's, incidentally, that was, the first, that was the day that I learned what a gold star family was. Prior to going on that motorcycle ride, I didn't know. And I fell in love with the concept. It grabbed me as tight as something can grab me, and I've been working for Gold Star Families ever since. That was about nine years ago. Well, you yourself are a Navy vet, and yet the military personnel don't know about Gold Star Families. Uh, Not only is that a true statement. Well, it's not always a true statement. A lot of them know. Uh, It's becoming more and more common for people to know. Uh, But I'll tell you another story. Last year, I rode my motorcycle almost 18,000 miles on one ride. I took off on July 2nd at 7 in the morning, and I returned August, I think it was August 26th at 3 p.m. And then in that one ride that went two months, July and August, I covered just about 18,000 miles. I I stopped in 44 states, and I met with more than 60 Gold Star families around the country. During that ride, somewhere in the neighborhood of day eight, okay, I'm from Minnesota, so get your geography caps on, your, your thinking caps for your geography on. I'm from Minneapolis. I was riding in Pennsylvania, and in Pennsylvania, there's, there is a uh, helmet option law. You don't have to wear a helmet in Pennsylvania, and when I don't have to wear a helmet, I don't. That's part of my disability. It's literally difficult for me to hold my head up when I have a helmet on. The extra weight is a challenge. 
But I get to the New York state line, and I'm on my way to go see a Gold Star mom whose son was killed in the Navy, and she lives up by Lockport, New York, just outside of Buffalo, New York. So I stop at the state line, at the New York state line, in New York, just outside of Erie, Pennsylvania. I stop at the state line. I put on my helmet. I get something to drink. I get on my motorcycle. I start it up, and it rolls about 10 feet, and then it quits. The motorcycle just died. And I tried all the little tricks I could to get that thing to start again, and I would, it just wouldn't start. And I was getting frustrated, and I was cursing to myself and looking up to the heavens saying, I don't know really what you got in mind here for me, but, uh, you know, I can't go anywhere until the motorcycle starts. Okay, that was kind of sort of what my prayer was like. Anyway, a voice comes from behind me and says, uh, mine does that sometimes too. Let me push you over here in the shade. We'll see if we can figure out what's wrong with it. And I turn around, and I see a silver-haired man. He's got a, a gray and silver beard and hair, and he's probably in his mid-60s, and he he, he helped me push the motorcycle over to a shaded spot in that parking lot. And while we're doing that, he sees the, the decals that I have on my motorcycle. There's, I don't know, six or seven or eight decals that say Gold Star Ride Foundation. So it's really easy to spot my bike out of a crowd because it says Gold Star Ride Foundation all over it. He says, what's this Gold Star Ride Foundation about? And I said, well, I'm doing this national motorcycle ride. I'm going around to find Gold Star families all over the country. He says, what's a Gold Star family? And I explained to him to immediate family members of somebody who was killed in the military. And he looked at me, and he stopped pushing the motorcycle. We were each on one side of the motorcycle trying to push it into the shade. He stopped pushing it, and he just stood there, and he looked at me, and he said, my daughter was killed in Korea three years ago. And I just looked at him, and I said, I guess that makes you a gold star dad. And he said, nobody ever told me that before. I never heard of it before. We finished pushing the motorcycle into the shade, and you can actually see this on our website. As at that point, I hit the record button on the cameras. I had cameras all over my motorcycle. I hit the record button, and I said, since you're a Gold Star dad, I'm going to give you this. And I pulled out a plaque that I had on the motorcycle that I give to all the Gold Star families that I meet. And we sit and talk for a little bit. And I read the plaque to him, and he's in tears, and I'm in tears because that's just kind of how emotional this stuff gets. And he, looked, he takes it from me, and he, smiles, and he smiles a little bit. He's got tears on both of his cheeks. And he says, I know right where that's going to go. And... If you go to our website and click on the vlog page, V-L-O-G, the video log, one of the videos that's there is the video of me making that presentation to that guy in that parking lot who I would have never met if my motorcycle wouldn't have broke down. And incidentally, as soon as we wiped our tears away, he says, try this thing one more time because I got to get going to something and I don't want to leave you here without any help. I put on the helmet, I straddle the bike, and I hit the button. It starts right up, and boom, down the road I go, and I didn't stop till I got to Lockport. And these are the kind of true stories you know, that I got to live through to help Gold Star families. Well, you know, what people don't understand is that this Gold Star families actually started with World War II. And it's funny because, again, D-Day. Actually, World War One started yesterday. Um, the actual gold stars weren't placed in the windows until uh, World War II. Um, World War One. And as I think, they started. In, they started with the blue stars in World War One. So right. 2019, right. they and started in turned into gold in 1918. They started in 1918. So 2019 mm-hmm. is actually the 101st anniversary of the term gold star family and what it means. 
as I was saying, this is the anniversary of the D-Day invasion as of yesterday, uh, going yesterday, uh, June 6th through June 12th. So it's funny that we are also weaving some of the World War II history. And as you mentioned, it was originally Blue Stars with World War One, and then turned into Gold Stars in World War Two. And they would place the Gold Star in the window so that the community would know that they had just lost someone in service. Which my understanding is that the gather around the family. My understanding is the Blue Star represents somebody in the family on active duty. And the gold star represents a fatality in the military to kind of oversimplify. So by today's, the way, the way we're working with it moving forward, uh, the blue star rec- represents a family that has an immediate member on active duty. And the gold star represents they're not coming home. Also, it showed the community, hey, this person has just lost someone. They would gather around the family and help them out, whether it was making meals or seeing that they had some financial need to make the mortgage payment. So basically, oh, you're completely correct. Issue forward with with the foundation, which is what I was trying to tie everything in with. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're trying to do. So, you know, I you know I got a I got a phone call here a couple months ago from a lady. And she was in her 20s, and she said, yeah, this is my dad's name. And um, I've been living in my car, and uh, this is my dad's name, and I'm a Gold Star daughter. And um, I, I don't want a lot. I just wonder if you could help me get a bigger car so I can stretch out more when I sleep in the back seat. And I looked up her father's record, and, you know, because that, that stuff is a little bit easier to access now than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, technology working for us. But I looked up her father's record, and he was third-generation lifetime military. That is, his grandfather served for more than 20 years and retired from the military. His father served for more than 20 years and retired from the military. And he served for 15 years before he was fatally injured. And in his uh, accommodation report, he earned two Purple Hearts and the Navy Cross, among other, many other accommodations from the service. The only thing he didn't earn was the Medal of Honor, Congressional Medal of Honor. And okay, this is a guy who's, this is the family he comes from, right? His father did more than 20 years and retired. His grandfather did more than 20 years and retired. And he gave his life, right? He took a bullet that ended his life in service of our liberty. So, Annie, you and I get to sit here and have a podcast and talk to people, and people get to hear us talking, et cetera, et cetera. We get to do this stuff because he was willing to just pony up his life, okay? And he, he, not only did he pony up his life, he did it with valor. He did it with courage. And incidentally, for anybody who might be misguided on this point, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward through the fear. So here we got this, what is in my opinion, a superhero. He not only served like me, I only served for four years, okay? And I came home, I'm a permanently disabled veteran, but I only served for four years. This guy gave 15 years of his life to service, and then he ended his life while in the service. And his daughter is homeless, living in a car. Do you think for a second that she'd be homeless living in a car if he was still alive? It's, uh, it's embarrassing to me how we as a country treat those families that gave up a life for all of the rest of us 
to be free and enjoy the liberties that we enjoy, to do whatever it is that we want to do, to, to do whatever we think is important to do, to raise our families, to, to go to church on Sunday, to educate our kids or, or take care of our parents when they get old. We got all of those liberties and freedoms to do that because we have a military that's willing to volunteer to take care of us and make sure that we don't have, I heard you say this earlier, we don't have Sharia law because we've got people willing to give up their lives to make sure that we don't have Sharia law. Because if we had Sharia law, I don't think we're going to be having this podcast. Certainly not with yeah. the, the subject matter that, it's, that it has. I'm trying to think of the proper word, and I'm stumbling over them. It's never too late to say thank you and to remember these many women that served, have served, and have fought also. You know, whether or not you're still served. You know, I, I saw a World War II veteran uh, the other day and stopped and said thank you, walked up to him and said thank you. Um, we were appreciate that you're doing that. Anti, we were having an anti de Blasio uh, protest. There was, I was, I'm former NYPD, and de Blasio came down here to South Carolina to rally for some money and support from the community down there. So myself and another former NYPD person that lived in South Carolina, we went outside where he was speaking and had our protest sign. And it was inside a church, and the church sent out someone to try to chase us off the sidewalk. But being cops, we know the law. Uh, so we very politely explained why we were there. We were not going to step on the church property, no problem. We're on a public sidewalk. And he couldn't uh, dislodge us. So they went and got a Vietnam veteran to come out and try to dislodge us, I guess to shame us. So first thing I did, I walked up and shook his hand and thanked him for his service. And told him my father served World War II. Both of my grandparents served World War One. And as once I got the conversation going, he left us alone. He hung out with us, talking with us for a while, which probably wasn't good optics for the Blasio. Well, you know, <laughs> I've, I've come to learn. Him. I've come to learn that almost every um, conflict can be simmered down just by dialogue just you give us give a person a second to listen to what they have to say and give treat them with a little bit of respect and almost all conflicts go away that's kind of been my experience uh, incidentally i know you got a few people listening out here who want to know a little bit more about the the foundation and why it is that you invited me to come on your show today and thank you very much again for inviting me to come and talk on your on your program but i did write a book and all of these stories and a lot more are in the book uh, you brought up Vietnam veterans. There's at least one story about Vietnam veterans in the book um, where I, I spoke to Vietnam veterans who told me what it was like to come home. And if you don't mind me just opining here for just a moment, we did not lose the war in Vietnam in Vietnam. The United States military kicked butt when we were over there. We won everything over there. You know, we lost the war. We lost the war here. We lost the, the war in Vietnam because we lost it here, because the citizens of the United States didn't know how to say, I don't like what we're doing over there, and I'm going to take it, out of, take it out on our soldiers. The soldiers did a kick-ass job over there every time. 
In fact, there's a there was a story of the Secretary of State, I can't remember who it was, that was signing the ceasefire agreement. And he said to his Vietnam counterpart, we won every battle in Vietnam, every single skirmish. We won it. And the Vietnam counterpart, who, again, names I forget, just responded with, that doesn't really matter, does it? We lost that war here. And I talked to people who, and I wrote about this story in the book, a sailor dressed in his uh, dress white uniform, the, you know, the Popeye uniform with the big white bell bottoms and the Dixie cup white hat. I, I'm familiar with this uniform because I've still got one hanging in my closet. It hasn't fit for 20 years, but I still got one hanging in my closet. Um, so uh, he was telling me, yeah, he got off the airplane. And in the 60s, the gates were different at the airports than they are now. I mean, we go to the gate and we don't step outside. We go right through the little, whatever they call it, the gangway or whatever, and we get into the airplane. But in those days, you went down the steps and you had to walk across the tarmac to get into the terminal. And people would line up along uh, a fenced-off area. And this one particular sailor was telling me the story. Yeah, got off the airplane. And he said, I saw all these people. And I thought, wow, what a great welcome home party. And all these people are here to welcome me home. And he's smiling as he walks down the steps to, of the, to get onto the tarmac from the airplane. And he goes to walk by him, and they pelt him with water balloons that were filled with urine. That's what lost the war in Vietnam. It certainly wasn't what we were doing in that country. It's what the non-veterans, the non-military types, what they were doing here. And to that end, uh, the Honorable uh, John Kerry was one of the most outspoken people. When he came back, he served in Vietnam. He came back and he said, I think his famous quote was, who wants to be the last one to die for a mistake? And I think that was just the wrong attitude to take because even he, as a Vietnam veteran, was saying anti-military things. We can protest our government without protesting our people. And I think there's a, a distinction that really needs to be made there with all the, just in case there's any protesters who are listening to us right now, uh, there's a distinction. You can protest something that you and you should protest something that you disagree with. You should agitate for change if you believe there's a situation that needs to be changed. But you don't do it at somebody else's expense. You don't do it, particularly people you don't like, and particularly people who are in the business of making sure you have liberty. And that's what our veterans do. That's what our military does. That's what our veterans have done. So when I drive around the country, I'm leaving Minneapolis. Monday I got to go, I think, 480 miles to ride for 10 minutes in a funeral procession for uh, an Army veteran. Uh, anyway, uh, as, as I go around the country, I always keep a bottle of Cuban rum in my motorcycle. I got the hard bags, and I always keep that bottle of Cuban rum, and it sits buried in the bottom of the bag just in case I run across somebody who identifies himself as a Vietnam veteran. Because these guys, the, what they went through, first of all, 90% of them didn't want to go. 90% of them were not given a choice. And they went anyway, and they did their job, and they did it with gallantry and, and courage. They, and they went over and did something that they didn't want to do. But they did it anyway. I met last Sunday, I met with a, a 75-year-old Vietnam veteran. We just happened to be at the same place at the same time. 
and we're talking a little bit, and he said that he was at an event where they invited all the veterans to stand so that they could take out just a moment to honor the veterans that were in the, in the, in the audience there. And he refused to stand up because the guy right in front of him was a World War II veteran. And the guys from Vietnam, the guys who fought in Vietnam, they think that the guys who fought in World War II are gods. And they think what they did was, well, you know what? The, all of the protesting and the slamming and the nicknames of baby killer and, and, and mother raper or whatever you want to say that was going on from the 60s and 70s, they started to believe that rhetoric. And here's a man who had a purple heart. He was shot twice. In 1967, he was shot twice, defending his country, would not stand up when he was recognized because he didn't like the job that he was told to do. We need to be ashamed of ourselves for allowing this person to feel that way. And I did everything I could. I spoke to him. We sat and visited for about an hour. And he did tell me that he was more proud to be an American at the end of our conversation than he was at the beginning of that conversation. And there was a, during that hour, both of us had moments when there was tears coming down our cheeks. But he felt a little bit better about his experience being a veteran after I paid recognition to him. Because I took the time to say, you didn't want to do what you did. Your government told you you had to. But you did it anyway. And you got a purple heart for it. Because you were willing to stand there and take it when somebody was firing live bullets at you. You were willing to take it. Listen, we've made a, 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 a huge amount of mistakes in the United States. We constantly have things that we can fix. But we really need to kind of start with the core. And the core is to realize that we got nothing. None of us in the United States have anything without our military. An all-volunteer operation... And currently, in the United States, of all of the people alive today, less than 7% have ever put on a uniform. Of the people who are serving on active duty right now, it is less than half of 1% of the total population. This is an extraordinarily small number of people doing an extraordinarily great job. And the fact that with some of these guys, well, you know what? I guess it's my turn. It's my day to catch a bullet in the throat. So, you know, I'll, I'll do that for the, what is it, 340 million people in the United States? I'll do that for them today because it's my turn. And what are the 340 million people do for that guy who just said, I'm giving my life for you? It's kind of embarrassing. I can take this a step farther to make it even more uh, to the point the guys who strap on uh, uh, explosive vests and climb themselves onto city buses and kill civilians in the name of trying to end the United States uh, to bring the conversation full circle so we can have Sharia law here. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to be a little bit glib. Um, but those guys, the, you know how they get talked into that is the leaders of those terrorist organizations go find these incredibly impoverished people who have a dirt floor, no running water, and never heard of the Internet, and they say, how would you like us to take care of your family for you? We're going to put them in this nice house over here on top of the hill. They're going to have running water. They're going to have air conditioning. They're going to have electricity. They're going to have Internet. They're going to have 
big screen TVs and their refrigerator is going to be full forever. All you have to do is volunteer to come with us, put on this vest that's going to explode when you get on the bus, and that's it. I mean, if we think about this by comparison, that's how they're getting us. That's how they recruit somebody to give up their life to kill as many of us as they can. And at the same time, we have an all-volunteer military, and when somebody gets killed in the military, the rest of us forget that they ever lived. This is why well, you know, This is why we well, do what we do at the, the Gold Star Foundation. The brainwashing we have from our enemies that we have allowed to seep into society which turns society against our military, against the things that we do, that we stand for, is all the more reason why we need to defend our military men and women out there that still believe in our republic. You know, i got to mention my people, because up in New York City, they thwarted another attacker. He was going to attack in Times Square using a hand grenade. So, you know, a lot of law enforcement are former military also. The training does cross over. So, you know, they'll attack us. If we don't stop them overseas, they will continue to attack us here. So we've got to stop importing the ideology and stop it being spread here. So we've got a two-pronged approach. And remembering these Gold Star families is extremely, extremely important. And your company, your, your, your foundation, the Gold Star Ride Foundation, uh, people can find at goldstarride.org. Um it is a 501c3 charity, so any donations people make to it you know, is a tax deduction. Uh, but there are good charities out there, and then there are bad charities. And uh, you had mentioned... Yes, everybody has to do their due diligence to figure out... you got to do your due diligence yeah. to figure out which charity you want to give to. That's true. And they can simply Google it online, and uh, there are different organizations that do chart you know, how much goes to expenses and how much goes to the actual charity. Because my husband had been working with the, uh, I don't remember if it was American Cancer or I forget which one he was working with. But when he did his research, he found that at that point only 65, 65% was going to uh, expenses. And for you, uh, 95 goes into the actual charity work and 5% or less actually Ever- goes to any expenses. Yeah, everything that we do go, or everything that we get goes to the charity and the work that we do. There are, you know, we have our incidentals. We have, you know, we have to pay the phone company, otherwise we can't talk on the phone. And, you know, we have to pay the internet company, otherwise we can't do a Skype call into a podcast. So we've got these minuscule things. But even the book itself, I wrote the book without a fee. I got no writing credit. Or, well, I get writing credit, but I don't get any writing fees for that. I negotiated a deal with the publisher so that the only money that the publisher gets for the sale of this book is the cost of creating the book itself. Everything goes to the charity. In fact, our, I think on our website, um, if you order the book on the website, you get the book as a thank you when you donate to the charity. If you click that link on the donate and get stuff, um, so you donate 35 bucks, and we send out a hard copy with color pictures of all of the wonderful things that happened last year on the ride and a little bit of discussion about what we're going to do, what we're continuing to do this year. Um, so all our, the book has turned into one of our fundraising tools. We, all right, we produced this book. The publishing company isn't taking anything for it. 
everything goes to make sure that we get to do uh, the work that we're doing as a, as a Gold Star Ride Foundation. And speaking of the, the donation aspect of this, um, I recently found out we accept cars and motorcycles and, and securities and real estate and all that kind of stuff too. Whatever helps us get it, get the mission accomplished, um, we can take that as a donation as well. But I found out if the securities, if you happen to be thinking, okay, here's an idea. Let's say uh, you bought a security 25 years ago and you kind of forgot that you had it or you inherited it. That's even a better scenario. You inherited something because, you know, your great uncle bought the, bought 500 shares of McDonald's in 1961 and you inherited that. Here's the beauty of this. If you donate stocks and securities to our organization and, you know, we have the brokers that handle all that crap. So I don't have to deal with the legalities of it, but if you're donating a security you get the full tax benefit of the value, the face value of that security. So if it is stocks from 1961 McDonald's, it's worth about uh, 1,500 times as what it was worth in 1961. You get the full value of the deduction without paying any of the capital gains on that security. If you sell that security straight up, of course, you have a capital gains issue that you have to deal with. Um, and without getting too much into capital gains and taxation and stuff like that, because I'm interested in gold star families and taking care of them. But I will say that the secure, what we receive is the full value of the security. What you get as a deduction is the full value of the security, but the IRS rules say that neither you nor our organization has to pay the capital gains on that particular security. That's the only way that I'm aware of to avoid a capital gain situation on securities. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that. Now, I'm just curious because you, you mentioned the different things that you do for the Gold Star families, like you know, helping build the, uh, mm-hmm. the playhouse and stuff. Um, are you thinking in the future putting up a page listing what Gold Star family needs, specifically whether or not, say, for example, a bicycle or a moped or, you know, a gift card for, to buying clothes for school or something like that. If the Gold Star family has that sort of a need, would you have maybe start a donation page that someone can click on that need and then provide it? Well, I appreciate that question, Annie. That's a really, really good question. Uh, we probably will not be doing that. And the, the reason for it is quite simply because of the manpower that's required to maintain that web page because it's got to be constantly updated. And we struggle as it is to have volunteers. Everything that is done is volunteers. If we have T-shirts printed, they're, they're volunteered or donated. If we have a web page built, it's donated. Everything is either done by a volunteer or a donation. And we're really behind the eight ball with the things that we're trying to do with this small band of volunteers that we have. Um, quite frankly, I wish that I could have 20 more volunteers that could come into our offices every day and have their own office and a telephone and computer so that they could make, reach out and make contact to the various places that we're trying to make contact with every day. I think we're probably three months behind in returning phone calls and emails to potential sponsors and corporate sponsors because we just don't have the manpower for it. But you could be rest assured. Well, if, how many if, I'm sorry, ask that question again. I was going to ask how many speak? How many states do you operate out of? We operate out of one, but we operate in 48. Um, And we've got feelers in Alaska and Hawaii. 
My, you know, my standing joke is that we're going to go to Hawaii and honor the families there as soon as Trump finishes building the bridge from L.A. to Honolulu. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, that's just, a, that's just a joke. We go where we're asked to go. You know, two days ago, like I said, we were asked to go to Omaha. Omaha, Nebraska is about a five-and-a-half-hour motorcycle ride from Minneapolis, so we'll be there at that funeral. We'll, we'll make the 10-hour journey, round-trip journey, so that we can participate in something for about 15 minutes because that it has that kind of an impact on that family. Those, those are the sacrifices we're willing to make. Um, a week, uh, excuse me, I'll just say uh, Saturday, I think, the Saturday before Father's Day, we've been invited to go to a small town in, in South Dakota. Again, it's a, I think that one's a six-hour uh, travel time to get there. Six hours to get there and six hours to get back. And we're going to plan on spending about three and a half hours with uh, three Gold Star families that are out there. And I think those Gold Star families represent the full spectrum of our population. We've got a 90-year-old, uh, seems to me he's a Korean. No, 90 wouldn't be Korean. He, he's a 90-year-old veteran whose son was killed in Vietnam. But we're also going to see a Gold Star mom whose um, son was killed in Iraq. Um, and there's one other one in there, and I can't remember what the details are about that. But we're looking forward to going to see those families and finding out what their needs are. And the first thing that we do is make sure that they understand that they're not forgotten. Even if we're the only ones who don't forget them, they're not forgotten by us. We're not going to let that happen. So they go in the short list of whatever they need. If we can give it to them, uh, they're going to get it. And if they've got, uh, you know, if that fallen hero from Iraq has a sister who is short on college money, that's what we're going to provide for them. If all they need is uh, um, emotional support for us to show up, for us to demonstrate to them that there's somebody who understands what they're going through. And not for nothing, but I get told all the time, well, you're a disabled vet. You're not a gold star dad. You're not a gold star son. Um, What qualifies you? (laughs) Believe it or not, I get that question a lot. Well, about 10 years ago, I had a, went through a traumatic experience where I lost my children, and they were gone from me for five years. They were, it was a civil dispute, and they're back now, um, at least part-time back. But it gives me a place where I get to uh, – incidentally, that story is explained a little bit more detail in the book as well. Um, but it gives me a place where I can look somebody dead in the face and say, I know what it feels like to lose your children because I do. I know what it feels like to lose your children. My parents are still alive, so I can't say that I know what it feels like to lose your parents. But I buried a brother on the 4th of July a couple years ago, so I know what that feels like. So it's not, I'm not coming in empty-handed, and I'm not doing this. I'm certainly not doing it for the fame because there, there isn't very much fame in it. Um, but I'm doing it because it's what I believe that I need to do. I believe somebody needs to do this, and I don't know anybody else who's doing it. However, if anybody wants to join me, Listen, I'm uh, kickstands up on Monday morning to go to Omaha, and on Saturday, I think it's 5 a.m., we're going to uh, South Dakota. If you want to ride along with me, uh, come on. Let's go. You can join me in this mission. I'd love to have you. The more bikes we have, we the, more, the louder it gets, and the more we get to have an impact. Well, just one last question, because uh, we had booked you for just the hour. Um, the, the volunteers that you have working for you, do you screen them uh, so that you know that you've got someone of good quality, good character? 
Uh, yes, for the position that we're asking them to fulfill. You know, I'm, I'm not – a lot of our volunteers are high school seniors. It's amazing um, what we can get out of young people, and I think that's so incredibly important, not because they're helping us, but because they're learning how to be respectful of the military and, and the freedom and liberty that they have as they grow up. So it's wonderful that we have them. So, yeah, they're screened for their character, and, and we ask them to be able to do this and perform this. But we don't ever ask a volunteer to do something that they're not qualified to do. I never ask somebody without a motorcycle endorsement to ride a motorcycle, for example. <laughs> and I never ask anybody who doesn't have extensive experience in counseling to take the phone call from a Gold Star family. When a Gold Star family calls us, the first um, conversation that they're going to have is usually with me, but if it's not with me, it's going to be with somebody else who's had some training in psychology and, and has some um, ability and professional um, empathy that they can bring to the table so that what's that Hippocratic oath? No harm is done. No further harm is done. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, we do that. We, we make sure that we never ask somebody to do something that they're not capable and trained to do. What is your email address? Uh, Mike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, your email address. I want to send you a, a, a link of something we do here. I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, something called the Freedom Cruise. I want to send you a link so uh tell you what we do. Why does that sound so familiar? Grand uh, Rapids, could, Michigan. Didn't I ride uh, down there last year? You could have. Donald Trump was uh, just here, and it could have been. We have a city. Uh, no, he never to... calls me. He never yeah, calls he me didn't... and tells me where he's going. He never calls me either. But um, we have a big freedom cruise, and we uh, the bikers are certainly welcome. We have a long, long parade of bikes and just a wonderful tribute to uh, um, to our veterans. And we honor a veteran um, each year. Um, I can't think of the guy's name, but he paints portraits, and we present it to the mom and dad or the the parents of the fallen hero. Um, it's really, really cool. The guy who does it, Tom Antor, he's probably, he's my council ward echo, I call him. Um, great guy. And uh, I want to, if you if you haven't heard of it, well, I'm going to send you the link, and if you have, great. I mean, it's a, it's, it's I just think right I up our alley. I've, I've been invited to come to that, I believe, by one of the guys actually who rode with me to uh, Washington, D.C., rode with me to the wall. Um, when I was in Michigan last year, I stopped at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Mount Pleasant, which is probably two or three hours from Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I missed Grand Rapids, but I got pretty close. Uh, I stopped in Lansing also, which is not far from. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a little east of Grand Rapids, but uh, not quite there. And it seems to me that I've been invited to come out to that, as you describe it. The, what I'd like to say is goldstarride.org. That's where donations can be made. There's contact information there. Our phone number is listed there. Um, our email address is listed there on the contact page. Incidentally, it's info at goldstarride.org. Uh, and, Annie, you were making a comment earlier about um, charities being ranked. Uh, and I'm I'm not using your words here. I'm using the words that I understood you to say. So there's organizations out there that that report on charities and the work that they do 
um, and what percentage goes to paying their bills and what percentage goes to the people that they're trying to help. Um, and I actually was asked to look up our own report on that. We publicized that we want a minimum of 85% of our donations to go back to the Gold Star families. But we're probably above that. Uh, the downside is that we don't show up on any of the reports because we don't have enough revenue to make their list. Those, the, the organizations that rank the charities have a minimum dollar amount, and we have never raised enough money to make their list. But the truth of the matter is we're not in it for the money. We're in it for the people. We're in it to help those people that are being forgotten everywhere else, and we're going to keep on going that way. That's, that's our mission. That's what we do. So, so the best way to reach out job. to us is uh, – I'm sorry, Annie? I said you do a good job. You do God's work. You do honor our, our military men and women as they should be honored. And you, as you were saying, people can reach you through your website, which is goldstarride.org, or send you an email at info at goldstarride.org, correct? Right. Right. I wish um, I uh, I wish I would have known you when I was up at the final four. I'd have definitely tried to look you up. Oh, we were around. <laughs> we were around. Um I'm not much of a sports fan. Um but I know that that was just last month, wasn't it? 2 months ago. Yeah, that was April. Yep, April the final four was here in Minneapolis. Uh you know, we got a really great city here. Unfortunately, we also have a polar vortex that likes to come and visit every winter. Um but uh, yeah, it's a there's there's a lot of good neighborly people here in Minneapolis. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm still here. I put up with the cold in the winter. Um, but listen, I appreciate Annie and uh, CS, right? Mike, Mike, Mike. Yeah, CS uh, CS had a funeral, so I am Mike, and I'm filling in for for him. I'm sorry, we should have done this at the beginning of our conversation, Mike. Well, it's perfectly okay. Kurt, I, I can't, uh, I can never fill Curtis's shoes, but of course, uh, um, we do the best we can. And I hope, you know, I, I definitely hope that uh, I did send the information your way to the Freedom Cruise. It'd be great to have you guys down there. Uh, bring Dr. Dingman. Um, we're we're chiropractic friendly around here, so uh, actually, uh, to- I, if since you brought up Dr. Dingman, I just got a report from him today. And I'll I'll just say that uh, his doctors are losing optimism. Can I just throw that out there? I think the rest of the information was actually on the website. You read it on the website, didn't you, Mike? Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, my comment to his secretary over there at the doctor's office was, of all the people that – what a great um, example of how, how unfair life is. Of all the people who don't deserve something like that, the guy's 51 years old, and it, and he's taken it like it. I know people who've had an ingrown toenail that don't take it as well as he's taken this. But it, it, it his days are pretty numbered. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a sad deal. Yeah. Well, we'll keep them in our prayers for sure. Right. Um, I appreciate you bringing them up and allowing me to to say that. Uh, if everybody would keep uh, Dr. Dingman. Dr. Dingman is one of our board members and. If you keep his health in, our, in your prayers, boy, if there's anybody who really deserves um, 
to win the battle. He's the guy. There's nobody that doesn't like him. He is so well liked and appreciated in his community, and he's always happy. Even going through this, he's lost 50 pounds, and um, he's always happy every day. He's always got a chuckle and a smile and a slap on the back for anybody who's walking through. It's it's really a sad deal. Oh man. He would be not I have uh, I have enjoyed listening me, to you, Anthony. Thank you so much. Annie always has rock star guests, but I mean we're hey. very partisan towards veterans and thank you for what you did. Obviously you're well, proactive. Thank- yeah, thank you very much for having me on here. And if you don't mind me just ending with something to prove to your listeners and commentators that their their comments are being served. Clearly, you didn't see me on the national news because I had my hair pulled back and I was wearing a suit and tie. So I was dressed nice. I'm looking at the comments on your website. <laughs> Somebody thinks I need to clean up and get a haircut. Um, <laughs> so I, I clean up. I clean up nice. Listen, you guys have been a lot of fun, uh, <laughs> and the stories don't end here. If we had two more hours, I could fill two more hours with more and different stories. You know, I, I and I like to try to sprinkle humor in it as much as possible because it's just more fun that way. Uh, but thank you very, very much for the time to be on your program. And if you ever want me to come back again, uh, I hope we can get it scheduled and, and get her done. Anthony, Thank before you, you bounce, much. before you bounce, tell us a little bit about, we never got a chance, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you raised and what sent you to, I, I mean, what called you to the service? I mean, like, we, we kind of missed out on that. We kind of jumped right into your, uh, um, you know, to the uh, Gold Star uh, Gold Star ride. Well, we, I like to jump right into the Gold Star ride because that's actually the what I think is the more important stuff. Um, I've got a pretty colorful resume, but if you want to go way back to the beginning, Uh, John Kennedy was president when I was learning how to walk in a farm community in southern Minnesota that's so small. I don't even think it shows up on Google Maps. It's it's really, really hard to find the teeny tiny farm town that I I was born in and grew up in. Um, I wasn't born on a, I wasn't raised on a farm, but I was raised across the street from one. And I bought my bicycles and got my spending money and I bought my first car with money I made working for farmers. Uh, not very far from the uh, Hormel meatpacking plant, and I'm sure you've all heard of that because spam, wow. right? Yeah, um, well, they had the history I of think, the strikes, too. I mean, that's legendary. Uh, well, we don't want to go there because that's going to take another hour. My dad lost his job <laughs> after 40 years in that strike. So thanks for bringing up that good note. Um, <laughs> in other news. Uh, yeah, in other news. It, well, I'll throw this out there. Um my dad did lose his strike. I was fresh out of high school when that strike took place. So when Minnesota's governor called out the National Guard and put armed soldiers around that factory, I was there as a young adult to see it. And, you know, if you want to just play around with history, it's kind of, I imagine it was a lot like Kent State, except there was fortunate none of those National Guardsmen opened fire on anybody. Um, but it was still, it's one of those things that gets erased from the history books. So I don't mind saying it out loud you can't find anybody who remembers that there was a strike well aside from you mike uh, you might remember the strike but did you know the national guard was on duty with loaded weapons for three months uh very much very much so but you're going to start world war three with annie and i over organized labor so uh when you were (laughs) out of high school what took you on from there (laughs) 
Well, uh, that's when I got into the – I actually started out as an entertainer fresh out of high school. And I was on, playing on stage and playing music on stage. And I did that for about five years. And one day through some – one day, I spent a month in heavy contemplation in my early 20s. And I decided that I wanted – and here's something I don't say on microphone very often. I decided that I wanted to add um, personal discipline – in a different level than I was able to come up with it on my own. Which, if you know anything about personal discipline, just because I was able to say that, I probably already had it. Uh, But I decided that I was going to put myself in the military to get the personal discipline that I wanted as a human being. And I shopped around with the recruiters and the Navy won, and I had my 25th birthday in boot camp. So I was an old man. I was, matter of fact, I was the same age or older than my drill instructors in boot camp. And I did my four years and I did it well. And I excelled. I, I, I did really well. I put on, I made rank really fast. Um, and I was an excellent weather forecaster for the United States Navy for four years. Uh, and then I got out of that and I got back into the entertainment game and I owned a nightclub and I played on stage a whole bunch. And I worked in fast food to pay the bills when entertaining wasn't paying the bills. And I ended up managing a bunch of places. Um, and then I, the VA recognized my disability, and they put me back to college and got me a couple of degrees in technical communications. So I started an IT company, and I ran that for about 10 years. And, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm pushing six decades old, so I've had some time to get some stuff done and get some stuff figured out. Um, but uh, I... I also dabbled in real estate and did pretty well in real estate too. I lost most of all of that stuff in a divorce about 10 years ago, which I've already alluded to. And basically for the last nine years or eight years, at least uh, I've dedicated to 15 hours a day doing whatever I can do for gold star families. So there you go. This is my full resume. Um, Listen, uh, for the next time I come on your program, I want you to know that I've made mistakes. I've I pulled some real boner moves in my lifetime. And I promise you, I think Teddy Roosevelt was the one who wrote in something in 1909 when he just lost the presidency or was running for president for the second time around or whatever that was. I can't remember exactly the details, but he was the one who said something along the lines of the critics got no business saying anything. Nobody should pay attention to a critic. They should, people should pay attention to the people who are, and I'm paraphrasing this, so forgive me, Teddy. The people we need to pay attention to are the people who are willing to get in the arena and get bloodied and bruised. And I've always been somebody, although I didn't realize it, I've always been somebody who was willing to get into the arena and get bloodied and bruised. And I've had a good deal of success that I get to brag about, but I've also had a great deal of failure. And I would have never had the success without the failure first. And even in this Gold Star Ride Foundation, I have failures left and right, but I keep plugging through it. I just keep on going. I keep getting bloodied. I keep getting bruised. You know, if you, if you actually get a chance to read the book, you're going to find that about every four pages, the quote that I restate is, if you didn't die trying, you didn't, die tr- you didn't try hard enough, which is a quote from uh, Dakota Meyer. Dakota Meyer is a uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, and if you get a chance to look at his story, that'll curl your hair. 
what he did as a Marine over in the Middle East is, is just dumbfounding with, with his demonstration of courage under fire. It, but his quote is, if you didn't die trying, you didn't try hard enough. So that was my mantra, and I wrote it over and over again in the book, every five pages. If I'm not dead yet, I'm going to keep going. I'm not dead yet. I'm going to keep going. So that's what I'm doing, and, and my motivation is to make sure that I don't find a Gold Star family that doesn't know that they're a Gold Star family. And if I find one, I'm going to make sure that they know. This is a, a dilemma. This is a shortcoming that our society has. And this is my way of trying to remedy it. As I said at the beginning, it's something that I think needs to be changed. So I'm agitating for change. So again, I appreciate very much all the time that you've given me. And I wish you guys a well, and I hope we get to talk again soon. I agree. Thank you very much. Check out Tony's website, the Gold Star Ride Foundation. Mike, we're into the last 13 minutes of the show, um, so we got to start wrapping up here. Um, I do believe it's next Friday I'm going to have Colonel Stewart on, who is uh, one of the remaining Tuskegee Airmen, uh, still still alive, and has a new book out about his experiences, which I'm about halfway through. So that's going to be very, very interesting. Um, Curtis is not with us today, if anyone's wondering. It's because he is at a funeral of a buddy of his that passed away recently, a fellow uh, veteran, and Curtis has the honor of playing tap at his funeral today. So that's why Curtis is not with us. I'm sure he's spending time with the family afterwards because I, uh, I understand they were very, very good friends. Um, that said, uh, I started mentioning this a couple of times earlier, talking about farmers. Um, a friend of mine sent me this email, which was really funny, and he writes, an Iowa's farmer summary of the Mueller report and the Democrats' hapless ongoing efforts in one sentence, and it reads, while we recognize that the subject did not actually steal any horses, he is obviously guilty of trying to resist being hanged for it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I, I, I'm just wondering... It, it, it used to be that you're innocent until proven guilty. But when you look at Robert Mueller and his statement he made after the report was published, he's saying that that President Trump is guilty before being proved innocent. So there's no crime being proved, but he's he's guilty of whatever that crime was. Does that make any sense? Well, no, it makes none. And clearly... Um, when uh, there, uh, if you if you listen to a lot of the pronosticators, they're all saying it is up to President Trump to prove his innocence. Um, they have not, they have absolutely nothing here, and it, I I hope soon uh, with our Attorney General uh, we will be on the offensive. They will be on the defensive. I don't think they will go after President Obama. Um, but hopefully they'll go after Clinton, and I'll tell you, Adam Schiff needs to be placed under arrest immediately. I mean, he is facilitating just an absolute attempted coup. Um, and yeah, this is all, if you think about it, and he, they're not going after the presidential office. They're going after Trump. It's kind of like they always attack the person. 
You know, if they if they go after Hannity, uh, every now and then they'll mention Fox News. But like Rush, they don't mention the EIB network. Um, you know, they go after Rush. They they attack your person your person as a person to try try to discredit you. They haven't done it with Trump. And what bothers them the most, Danny, is that Trump fires back over and over and over. I think today was the best when he said that uh, obviously uh, that Nancy Pelosi is vicious and evil. And uh, <laughs> that Maxine, was, I always love it because at the end of every sentence, if it has nothing to do with it, he still takes a, a shot at Maxine Waters. Uh, <laughs> always love it. What, what, what does he have? Nervous? Or, was it Nervous Nancy now for Nancy Pelosi? That's the new one. Yes, Nervous and Nancy. That, and I don't know if you noticed, she but does. Some, lady, some lady immediately on uh, MSNBC or CNN runs to raid. Oh, no, she's not Nervous Nancy. 24-7, Annie, these people talk about Trump. I mean, their Facebook pages, their Twitters, their newscasts. <laughs> it's like they're so obsessed with them. It's just so funny. <laughs> you know, he has, he just owns these people. <laughs> you know, they can't stop talking about them. Oh, man. If they don't talk about Trump, then they have nothing else to broadcast because they really don't give a damn about what the real true news is out there. You know, no, that's because, as we've mentioned, example, go ahead, Annie. Sorry. I was going to say, a perfect example is how much How much do you see them reporting about the D-Day? Oh, they criticized his speech, uh, saying that it ruined D-Day. Um, but they wouldn't broadcast the speech. Uh, just a couple oh. of days before he was in England visiting in a, in a state visit. Uh, oh, uh, he badmouthed Meghan Markle, called her nasty and the only thing they took it so out of context he was asking if he was aware about a statement she made meanwhile he had been complimenting her and then he said no I was not aware of the statement I wasn't aware that she had said she had done anything nasty he didn't call her he didn't say that she's a nasty person I can't stand her he went on further after he said I was not aware she was nasty meaning she made a nasty statement he went, goes on to compliment her about you know, her position and poise as the princess, thinking that she do a great job. She seems to be a wonderful person. He compliments her. Oh, he used that word nasty. That's akin to using a foul language. It's crazy. They have gone so rabid. The mainstream well, media, it, it becomes hysterical. If if you think about it, Annie, it's it's their ideology they're pushing. Go back to when you in Buford County had your first Tea Party meeting in your living room where you said you had, you know, half a dozen or a dozen people. So the Tea Party rises and all over in many states you have your first gathering. Now, mind you, most people in the Tea Party at that time were 50 or older. And what does the media report? Oh, they littered everywhere. They made this mess, which isn't even it's such a lie but this is what they do anything that threatens whatever it is that their ideology that they're pushing they try to smear it i mean you don't go anywhere where there's adults and they leave a mess like that unless they're democrats of course but my point being is that this is what this is how they do it this is exactly what they're attacking and uh one thing they just can't stand about trump is he gives them he gives them uh 
no respect. They don't deserve it. But he's not he's not afraid to nickname. And if you think about it, Annie, he really has coined the phrase fake news. I mean, we all said fake news every now and then, but he he phrased it. And I mean, low IQ Maxine. Uh, you know, he, he's been calling what's his uh, what's his name Dumbo. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Crazy Joe and Sloppy Joe. I mean, he just these nicknames stick. You know, it just it just drives everybody crazy. <laughs> well, he has an advert. We're down to our last five and a half minutes. But thank you like, for uh, having. Thank you for. Thank you for you. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry, I, I, Annie. I'm sorry I didn't get back to you. I never got a chance to tell you is that I'm taking this campaign very seriously. My phone is in my car, and by the time I can return your calls, and I did get a text, and I did get your voicemail. I just thought, well, I'll join her, but uh, um, I have, I've, there's an awful lot of people waiting for return calls. Um, I'm going to win this. I'm not going to lose. And, you know, it starts with taking time and, and campaigning. Right now in Michigan, right now during this time, people are getting ready to go, go places and do things for the weekend. So I'm not going to bother them on a Friday afternoon or Friday evening, uh, knocking on their doors and inconvenience. And I already had a dog sick on me about an hour, a few hours ago. So I thought, good time to join Annie. But thank you, Annie. I, I, I love doing this with you when I can. I really do. I miss you, and I love listening to you and Curtis. You know, you're, we're, we're true patriots. Well, maybe soon, if you win this election, you'll end up uh, being able to join us. But, uh, Mike, thank you for, for being with us. Um, we're going to have the uh, Tuskegee Airmen uh, next week, uh, the week of the 20th. Um, I will not be doing the show. Curtis will be doing it. So I don't know if he's going to reach out to you uh, or tell or whatever. I think Kel is now doing something else on Fridays also. So I may have him reach out to you to see if he can uh, rope you in. Uh, so you can work with him in the studio here on, on the 20th, because I'm going to be having a small, minor heart procedure done. And then I'll probably be back up and running the following week. So, again, uh, I want to I have uh, my, On the 20th, I have a candidate form at 3 o'clock, so I will not be able to do that. Uh-huh. Curtis is going to be soloing. <laughs> it will be interesting. <laughs> All right, yeah. Mike, thank you again. And Yanni is thank waving you, hand, his hand at you. Thank you. Hi, Annie. Until then. <laughs> God bless. Have a good we'll weekend, everybody. With close song. When the roll is called up yonder, and I'll say good night and God bless. <laughs>